Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, Austin Kopic is joining me, and we're going to be looking at the astrological forecast for March of 2024. Hey, Austin. Hey, Chris. How's it going? It is going very well. Uh, we've got a lot of news to talk about in the first hour of this episode, and then the second hour, we're going to get into the astrology for March. Uh, I'm going to do a very quick overview of the astrology here at the beginning before we jump into the news segment. And as always, um, there will be timestamps in the description below this video or on the podcast website for this episode if people want to find the timestamp to jump ahead to the forecast. I can't unfortunately embed it for the Spotify people, even though they've been requesting it. But if you go to theastrologypodcast.com, you can find timestamps there. All right, let's go ahead and jump right into it. I want to show, especially for the video viewers, our planetary alignments calendar, which shows um, all the main astrological events for March. So the first thing that happens in March, right at the top, is we get a Venus-Uranus square on March 3rd. Then later in the week, Mars squares Uranus on the 9th, and the same day Mercury ingresses into the sign of Aries. Uh, there's a new moon, which is our first lunation of the month, on the 10th, which is a new moon in Pisces. Then Venus goes into Pisces on the 11th. The Sun conjoins Neptune on the 17th in Pisces. And then the Sun right after that moves into Aries and we get the spring or vernal equinox on the 19th. Then we have a Venus-Saturn conjunction on the 21st. Mars moves into Pisces on the 22nd. There is a eclipse. We enter into eclipse season where we have a lunar eclipse in the sign of Libra on the 25th, which then connects back to a set of eclipses that we had way back in October, and that takes place on the 25th. And then towards the end of the month, Mercury starts slowing down and stations retrograde. It doesn't actually station until April 1st, but we're basically in Mercury retrograde land by the end of March. Um, yeah. So those are some of the astrological things we're going to be talking about later in this episode. Uh, but first, why don't we catch up and check in about some news stories that have been happening over the past month since we recorded our last forecast. Uh, how does that sound to you? That's, that sounds like accountability, Chris. We, you know, we talk a lot about, hey, Mercury, Venus, and Mars are all going to conjoin Pluto, which just ingressed into Aquarius. And, you know, we should see a bunch of stuff um, in the key of Pluto and Aquarius. And so we did. Indeed, we did. So we've got a bunch of tech news stories that happened because everything was going through Aquarius. I'm also kind of a tech guy. I have, you know, moon and ascendant in Aquarius and Uranus on the midheaven. So this is some of the stuff that comes across my desk. Um but we've also been paying attention to how some of these transits are going that are playing out this year that are very tech-oriented with the Pluto ingress into Aquarius, the Jupiter-Uranus conjunction, and the Saturn-Neptune conjunction as well. And many of these stories seem to have that theme. So let's go through them real quick. So at the top of the month, right on February 2nd, Apple released their VR headset, the Apple Vision Pro. There's a lot of fanfare about it. There was like people walking around New York City and other big cities with like VR headsets on because the headset allows you to like see through to the outside. So it's kind of surreal seeing all these people like walking around with them on or wearing them on subways and stuff like that. Um, so uh, yeah, blending the, you know, the worlds or the difference between what's real and what's not real as an obvious theme. But also one of the things that people are showing off in like videos was that um, with the headset on, it creates persistent windows where a person could like Put up one screen at their desk that they're working on 
and then they, they would walk to another room and that window would stay there and they'd go to another room like their living room and there would be another window in virtual reality where it's on their wall and it's like a big television so i guess that's why apple's calling it spatial computing because there's something about creating a persistent like virtual space that blends virtual reality with the real world and i feel like that's super saturn neptune right yeah well you know um one of the one of the things that we've been seeing recently with all of the Pluto and Aquarius stuff we've talked about is, um, you know, we're brought to ask, oh, is this Saturn Neptune in Pisces where we have this uh, uh, sort of erosion of the boundary between imagination and reality or that boundary is troubled? Or is this like a Pluto and Aquarius tech thing? And most of the time it's both. And right. um, astrologically, right, um, Pluto is in Saturn sign in Aquarius. And so the ruler of Pluto and Aquarius is Saturn in Pisces with Neptune right there. Right. So like the, <clears throat> yeah, um, the, this trajectory of technological change, which Pluto and Aquarius is telling us about is all it's working with that Saturn, Neptune and Pisces. So that's, you know, the, the blending is everywhere where it's really Pluto and Aquarius using Saturn and Neptune's material to make stuff would be one way to think about it. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. Um, in other news, one of the biggest like tech stories that happened this month that also matches those themes is OpenAI, the company that made ChatGPT that set off the entire sort of like AI revolution a little over a year ago. On February 15th, they dropped a preview of a new um, thing that they're releasing, which is an AI text to video generator. And this thing is honestly, like one of the most jaw-dropping things I've seen in the past year with all of the different AI stuff coming out, this one is up there with like the original release of ChatGPT and the original release of um, just doing AI-generated photos because now they're able to do um, lifelike, realistic, one-minute videos from a simple text prompt. And in looking through some of these videos that they create, I, I really have a hard time telling the difference between um, what's real and what's not. Like this video, for example, for those watching the video version of like a bluff uh, or, a, or like a shoreline in California with the waves going up against it, like this is completely AI generated. It looks like a drone video, but it's, it's completely generated by a computer. So there is some crazy stuff happening right now in terms of that and in terms of the impact that this is going to have on many different levels of society now that we have the ability or, or now that that companies are producing these programs that can create lifelike AI video that you can't tell the difference between what's real and what's not. Um, I saw one tweet that said, uh, quote, trusting your own eyes and ears is no longer an option. And like what that's going to do in terms of the impact on society, the impact on different people whose job relies on doing video, either like YouTubers or, um, you know, videographers that shoot like a B-roll video. Um, you know, it's just going to be some very massive changes happening. Yeah. Um, so what do you, what, what changes are you, does this make you think about, right? I guess on a hopeful um, or on, on a more positive, on the more positive side, like this can be um, a very fancy new paintbrush for people to create things, right? 
um, on the negative side, um, you know, there's always been a good business in um, fake news, I guess is what we call it now. But like, um, you know, in creating a facsimile of reality that is not reality so that people will believe that, you know, as soon as lying was invented, uh, this became a game. Um, and so as far as misleading people for the thousand reasons that people mislead people, this seems like a wonderful tool. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be, and especially with politics and stuff like that, the ability to generate like fake videos of politicians or people is going to skyrocket and that could have real major impact even on the election in the US later this year. Um, so that's definitely a real danger. And then I read about like there's a story that came out today that like Tyler Perry was about to invest $800 million in a new like production studio for um, for for filmmaking, for movies. But he put that on hold because he's concerned that this technology is just completely going to change things. And that's one of the questions is how it's going to impact like the film industry, for example, or where animators will probably be put out of work. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I recently I always have used stock photo sites to buy images for like my websites or podcasts or stuff like that for thumbnails. I was looking for a thumbnail for the episode with Demetra and I went to my normal stock photo site, the uh, Adobe. And I was shocked to actually see that like something like 70 or 80% of the results that I was getting looking for an image were AI generated. So I felt like that was a good early example of how some of this AI stuff is just like shifting things like really rapidly um, and sometimes in ways that aren't initially like expected or controllable. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that um, it leads me to think about is, uh, so is, and there's this essay that I don't know, it's written maybe a hundred years ago um, by Walter Benjamin. Um, and it's called the, the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. Um, and it's, and he is in the piece trying, uh, trying to have a good think about what happens to a let's say um a painting let's say a, a portrait a beautiful like oil painted portrait in an age when you can take a photograph of the same right and right. Uh, that um you know that essay is considered a classic because a lot of the points raised in it um kind of work every time there's a new uh, a new jump in the ability to uh, another, another, uh, yeah, another quantum leap in mechanical reproduction of, of images and artworks, um, and uh, one of the pieces from that is that basically paintings still have their own value, but they they become sort of uh, they become more valuable in some ways uh, while becoming less common. It they you know it becomes what we would call now like boutique or artisan, right? Where something is special. Um, it's like, oh, somebody actually made this is, you know, uh, in an age of mass production. Oh, my God, somebody, a human being actually spent time creating this movie, right, rather than just telling the AI to make a movie. Um, and it, it's it's not really a, a, a pro or con argument. It's just what happens to an older form, uh, an older and more attention and labor intensive form of creation um, when you have something that is more economically efficient um, because it requires less attention. And so uh, I guess what I'm winding around to is a lot of 
uh, a lot of the you know sort of art formats or image production uh, movie production uh, and image production that we think of as that we've grown up as that's just the way it's done um, may in the not too distant future um, be seen as sort of boutique or artisan and uh, very inefficiently labor intensive um, but kind of beautiful because, um, you know, because it's so hard to do. And why would you do it that way when it's so easy to? Um... Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, um, you know, Pluto, I think I mentioned in the last forecast, but just Pluto and Aquarius, when I did the Pluto and Aquarius study in history, one of the things I noticed is that sometimes a new technology would come out, but it would just like completely supplant and decimate whatever the previous approach to that technology was, like paper did, for example, with papyrus. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's what we're seeing here in the early stages of Pluto and Aquarius. Um, and what was interesting, you mentioned, um, what, like a quantum leap in artists in art basically, but that's kind of what happened here. Um, because I was paying attention to the astrology that day and the announcement came out on February 15th. Um, it was actually kind of weird because Google put out a big announcement that morning and then OpenAI seemingly to compete with Google, like dropped this big announcement, which completely overshadowed anything that Google had announced that day because everyone's jaw just like dropped seeing that they could now make like lifelike video just from a text prompt of writing like a sentence. So it was very surprising. The moon was in Taurus um, conjoining Uranus. So we were getting that Jupiter-Uranus conjunction activated by the moon. And Venus was at like 29 degrees of Capricorn. But what happened is like by the next day, once the news really got out and everybody had started talking about it, Venus had ingressed into Pluto or Venus had ingressed into Aquarius where it conjoined Pluto. So I think the main signature for this was the, the Venus-Pluto conjunction basically. And what you said was kind of um, striking in terms of that, of like the, the a quantum leap in terms of artwork. Um, I know you were talking about that in the terms of the past and paintings and stuff, but this was kind of our 2024 version of that. Yeah. Or I would say tools, art tools, right? The, the work of art, um, you know, uh, the, the work of art ultimately is about what the one wielding the tools is able to do with them. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is why like, I don't know, Byzantine frescoes are not worse art than um, digital paintings, right? <laughs> they're uh, they're just, uh, but as far as the tools, much, much, a quantum leap in the power of the tools, right? Yeah. The, uh, um, yeah, the, the, I don't know, yeah, the robo paintbrush that can paint whole um, camera pivoting digital scenes. Um, and like Pluto things, right? So Pluto... I'm very fond of reframing um, the word evolution or evolutionary, which is applied to Pluto and shifting it back to its biological um, sort of function. It's Darwinian uh, connotations um, where things have to, where the environment or factors within the environment change and either, and offer the choice of either effective adaptation to an uh to a semi semi-permanently altered environment or extinction right and if you're in the field of image production right like this stuff is at least at this point very strongly suggesting um an evolutionary threat of uh of an adapter die level Right, which right. doesn't mean that there aren't uh, adaptations, but I can't imagine 
Uh, for example, being a company that does trailers for video games or a company that is hired by other video game companies to produce cutscenes, um, like high def cutscenes for a video game um, and not using these tools or having to compete against uh, another firm that uses the tools while you don't. And then there's, you know, who uses the tools best, et cetera, et cetera. But like, yeah, uh, image, uh, image and moving image production is getting that, uh, you know, has has that, you know, it reminds me, it reminds me of the movie Melancholia. You ever see Melancholia, uh, Mars von Trier? Yeah. Right. Where the um, the moon is just getting closer and closer and closer to the earth and will eventually crush it. But everybody's just gazing up uh, at the celestial object, which is their doom. Um, inching forward a little bit every day. Yeah, I think adapt or die is a good keyword for this because I think this is an early preview that like the artists are getting hit with this first, but this is something that's going to hit all levels of society where the technology will impact things and force people to either adapt to it or be completely you know, overrun by it in some way in terms of their chosen careers and professions and the way that it integrates or doesn't integrate into it. Um, I saw one person like comment on Twitter saying that this technology with the video is going to be like the, an asteroid hitting the dinosaurs for those who do like YouTube videos and stuff at this point um, in terms of the, the potential for that and how it's going to impact um, that whole space where video is key to that entire industry. Yeah, or like some sort of Marvel or DC comic book thing where the asteroid that hits has some sort of, um, you know, super cosmic radiation and mutates and gives thousands of people superpowers, right? Like the right. The, the amount of like the, um, the, how should we say, the amount of imaginable moving images that people will be able to create um on the same budget they're working with now will be a thousandfold what they were a year ago right yeah so that's true that made me think of the classic 1993 movie uh meteor man with eddie murphy classic do you watch that one no no i think i know that it exists okay well it's like a meteor and it gives them special superpowers but i, I like that analogy because yeah some people that's the adapt part is you know we're all going to have to find ways to adapt to some of this stuff so seeing some of these early previews of what that's like in different industries is illustrative. Um, moving on to other news, another major announcement that happened is um, that company Neuralink, um, owned by Elon Musk, announced their first successful human implant of a device in a patient's brain that's allowing them to control a computer, control a cursor on a screen. So the procedure supposedly happened on January 28th, and the news came out on the 29th and 30th. And there were some like weirdly close alignments that day that were within a degree. One was Mercury was conjunct Mars. It was separating, but it was still very close in the same degree. And two, Venus was exactly trying Jupiter. Um, the moon was in Virgo that day, and it was actually completing a grand trine with um, Venus and Jupiter, but then also connecting and bringing in um, the opposition to Saturn and Neptune and Pisces. Mm. So again, it's another of those things of like huge technological advancements that are, that are going to have huge impact and implications for society in the long term, um, but also a breaking down of like boundaries and like barriers where, um, you know, for some people, it's going to be people that don't have motor skills 
to use their hands or be able to control a computer or a mouse or a phone, but now can, you know, which is a good thing. Obviously, there's going to be major pros and cons with this technology, just like all the others. But it's interesting to see the symbolism, the archetype, like manifesting in a different way there. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's pretty interesting because if we... If we go back to what I was talking about last month with the the sort of the cyberpunk checklist, which is what Pluto in Aquarius seems to be going down very quickly, all of these, um, like this whole family of near near future dystopian high tech visions, um, there's always something that gets called like a data jack or a data port where somebody has basically a, a plug in in the brain so that they can interface with machines. Um, you know, whether that's a computer or um, in a lot of them, uh, a vehicle, right? So that you plugged into the vehicle systems and are getting, you know, a heads up display and have greater sensitivity and can guide it more effectively uh, or data stuff. And it's interesting in a lot of uh, in a lot of the a lot of variants um, of that that cyberpunk world, um, you have um, people in societies within that making very sort of conscious choices whether to be augmented or unaugmented right you have like a cultural reaction um to that that human that that human machine interface um and so i look forward to seeing how that plays out and then there's of yeah, course those, like those cultural re reactions i think that's a really important point that's going to be huge as everyone's going to have these decisions that we've never had to make before of that choice between like to use AI or to not use AI, to use um, robots in the next one we're going to talk about, to use um, the implant or to not use the implant and the different cultural implications it ends up having for accessibility and for what you can do in work or in society versus what you lose as a result of that. Yeah. In um uh, another thing, another sort of piece of that cultural reaction in some of these fictional envisions envisionings of a place we're sort of already entering um is religious um religious reactions like you have um it, it, like when i'm thinking of like some, there's some gibson there's some shadow run but basically the like the violation of the uh or seeing seeing like the the data report or the mechanization of the human form as like a a violation of the divinely created order and certain um certain religious factions uh being wholly against modification um yeah just you know like because like, what for example <laughs> let's put let's take this like 20 years down the road to the end of pluto and aquarius is the pope not going to have any um, any opinion at all on someone replacing, let's say, all of their uh, all of their limbs and half their brain with a machine, right? Like it, it it's too much. It, it brings up the question of the human condition too much um, to not have philosophical and religious authorities and groups have strong opinions one way or another. Yeah, for sure. As long as well as like arguments about bodily autonomy or like if somebody who let's say in your in that scenario let's say it was somebody that was like blown up in war in an explosion in a war zone or something and lost huge parts of their body but then was able to still live and have a full life as a result of those modifications and then the real argument that it becomes there like in your context over you know religion versus 
I don't know, bodily autonomy and like echoes of like similar conversations that are happening, you know, right now today in other areas in this month, actually very strikingly with the IVF stuff happening in, um, was it Alabama or no, it was in Alabama. It's like Oklahoma and uh, embryos and, and different things like that. Okay. Yeah. I missed that. But yeah, that like there's, um, yeah, the uh, existing cultural institutions are not inert in the face of radical new developments, especially those that intrude on or modify or enhance like the human, the human body from the inside out or the, or change the human mind. Um, and that'll be, that'll be a big part. Like, you know, like I was saying with, uh, I think I mentioned it last month, uh, William Gibson, who wrote Neuromancer and is considered the grandfather of cyberpunk, although mega nerds will point out the precedents that he drew on. Um, you know, when people ask him, hey, how did you come up with stuff that basically happened 20 years later? Um, he said, you know, he said, I, I don't really study technology. I study how people behave around technology. And I think we need to keep that in mind when we see these new technologies and as we're tracking the pluto and aquarius story yeah i think that's great advice especially for astrologers like if we go back in history and study archetypes and dynamics and recurring situations that people have found themselves in in history and society and, and connect it with the correct planetary um, alignments at that time sometimes you can project that out into the future um, to make pretty good predictions and actually we've got a good example of that here in a little bit of a prediction we made last month that already came true this month. Um, okay, so moving on to the next one, mm -hmm. um, I kind of missed this one. It was in January, but there was like a video um, on Twitter that Elon Musk put out of one of the Tesla robots folding laundry. Um, and this was kind of crazy. Apparently, it's not fully autonomous. It's being controlled by somebody but I was struck by like the delicateness with which it was able to manipulate the laundry with its hands, um, which is again, like taking things to another level and um, connecting it with the current astrology. There was a report just uh, yesterday on February 23rd saying, quote, Jeff Bezos and NVIDIA join OpenAI and Microsoft in backing a humanoid robot unicorn valued at $2 billion, sources say. So basically, like all of the huge companies now are evidently scrambling to invest in robots, basically in robot technology, partially in, connect in, in connection to an anticipation of some of the changes they're starting to see in AI. Um, so yeah, stuff's starting to happen very, very quickly that's going to change society in a major, major way. It'll be interesting. It'll be yeah. interesting. The, um, so, yeah, never mind. Go ahead. Oh, just the way that you described how delicate the robot's touch was made like me a, like imagine, a, like imagine a, you longing for its its gentle yeah, caress. Like a soft caress across. Well, that actually, I mean, honestly, that was one of the things that made me think of is another social thing we will deal with later in this century, like I'm calling it, which is just what happens when your like son or daughter comes home with a non-human entity and says they're in a relationship with them and what kind of social and other you know debates does that set off in society like i think we'll absolutely see that in our lifetimes potentially as like a a debate that happens yeah it'll definitely happen <laughs> yeah i mean it's yeah yeah i mean it's there are, there's a certain 
very small subpopulation that are nonetheless what a micro niche of people that are very excited about this and have been trying to do this every time every time there's a new technology you know we have the like the sex doll crowd um and you know you saw with uh, when chat gpt first came out there are little stories about um you know people were trying to turn it into a, a robo boyfriend girlfriend whatever um it's yeah 100 percent. they're small but very enthusiastic um uh, uh <laughs> a population out there who will definitely give that a run yeah well i mean it'll bring up a lot of fundamental questions about like what does it mean to be conscious what does it mean to be human what is it all, all those different things um so yeah we'll see how that goes but that's an early preview of that so speaking oh, sorry, of one, one sorry one quick point uh you just you kind of nailed it there bring up fundamental questions about what is it what does it mean to be human and that's so part of pluto moving through what um every hellenistic astrologer would call a humane sign Astro uh aquarius is in the shape of a human and so it brings up it brings the that plutonian challenge to the thing to human things and in this case as in a variety of other connected cases um the the definition um and parameters of what is human are going to need to be thought through and defined much more in with much more detail and more carefully and thoughtfully in response to the threats right because as as human functions are replicated by non-human things um, like, you know, uh, for example, for a while, anthropologists were like, oh, what differentiates us from the animals? It's hands or it's tool use, right? And then we find animals that use tools. Okay, that's not the difference. That's not like the defining human thing. And so every time there's a there's a challenge, the definition needs to become better. And, you know, what you were just saying, and a, a lot of these things will um, force a further definition of what is human. Yeah, or like, what does it what does it mean to feel love and like what is love or can love be experienced between different sentient entities what is sentience etc cetera, etc cetera. but um sometimes you said better definitions but i would say sometimes definitions just change sometimes definitions are expanded or broadened um you know some of the discussions are happening right now about like gender and, and uh, or sexual orientation or different things like that and definitions have changed compared to their traditional ones um at this point so it'll be interesting to see how definitions are either challenged or change or transform and adapt to whatever our current society is in 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 years yeah challenge yeah uh, adapt change expand contract react right because there will probably not be one human definition that is um agreed upon but that's part yeah. of that cultural reaction it's like same so everybody's reacting to the same thing, but different, different answers. Um, some of which are better than others. <laughs> uh, some of which are just different than others. Sure. So speaking of reaction, actually, we had a, a really great example of that around the time of the Mars-Pluto conjunction, which I think is illustrative of some of those themes that we'll see coming up in the future, since this is one of our, our first passes of this. So this happened on February 10th when there was like a mob of people in San Francisco that burned an autonomous driving vehicle um, where it was like set on fire. And let me see if I have a link for that. 
okay here is a link yeah but it was just like it's one of these autonomous um apparently in san francisco there's like delivery vehicles that drive around without a person in the car that's completely autonomous to deliver food or other stuff and it's like these startup companies that are doing this um but for some reason one of them like got stuck in the middle of the street and it was during the middle of like a celebration or something and a bunch of people ended up setting it on fire um but uh, somebody on twitter said quote when they write the history books the machines will point to this as their boston massacre so after thinking about that a little bit, I personally, I for one, would like to apologize to our future AI overlords and disavow the actions of the humans here. Um, Austin, are you with me on that, or, or are you part of the the human resistance? Yeah, I think I'm going to stick with the human resistance. I will um, probably celebrate this first act of um, uh, <laughs> this first, yeah, this. Um, how should we say, farsighted um, early reaction to uh, what will become, uh, you know, an unendurable tyranny. And um, that is the wrong uh, choice, my friend, I'm afraid, yeah. but I don't know. We'll... I don't know. Are they done with the Terminator movies yet? Does, I mean, uh, they're does never John done Connor with the Terminator win? movie. Yeah. Does Skynet win? Well, the ability to time travel and change what already happened kind of, uh, <laughs> yeah, kind of makes that open-ended, right? But um, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll yeah, I, I guess I'll I'll side with uh, with John Connor and the um, uh, who's about my age um, in the original in the original movies, like thirteen in nineteen ninety two. Well, what's yeah, like the in the future scenes are set in like twenty twenty nine and like Terminator one and two, which is funny because we're almost there at this point. So uh, anyway, joking aside, an important thing I learned from this um, fiasco that happened around the Mars Pluto conjunction are that there are two main autonomous robo-taxi services in San Francisco, and that one of them has now expanded their service to Phoenix and has plans to move into Los Angeles and Austin next in Texas. Um, so I think this is really interesting because it reminds me of the Jupiter-Uranus, which Jupiter is going into Gemini this year, and then of course Uranus is going to go into Gemini in a year or two for seven years, and Gemini is associated with short-distance travel and services like that. So I think this is one of the early previews of the complete transformation of, you know, how we get around, how deliveries are done, how taxis, how food deliveries and other things like that are done, switching to autonomous services. Um, but it was interesting to see both a preview of that as well as a preview of conflict between, you know, humans and machines or or reactionary things or like pushbacks to automation of things here around the time of the Mercury-Pluto uh, conjunction. And I think there's something illustrative about that that we'll see again in the future. Yeah, 100%. All right. So moving on to other alignments, there was a Mercury-Pluto conjunction in Aquarius on February 5th, and a bunch of stuff happened like all pretty much on the same day as this Mercury-Pluto conjunction or very close to it. So one of them um, that was a, that was the biggest one for me that was kind of crazy was um, last month on the forecast, I had talked about how when I went back and did the Pluto and Aquarius episode that I had um, uh, seen that Pompeii, that the, the volcano exploded and buried the cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum in 79 CE, and that this was during a Pluto and Aquarius period. 
So when we were talking about Mercury conjunct Pluto in the forecast last month, literally in that area of the timestamps of the episode, I noted how there's these companies that want to x-ray some of the surviving um, scrolls that have been sort of like mummified and they can't be opened, but there was hopes that someday they might be able to x-ray them and read the scrolls and, and recover the texts that have been lost on them. Um, but what was crazy is on February 5th, the day of the Mercury-Pluto conjunction, um, a company actually announced that they had been running a contest for somebody to develop an AI program to do that, and that they announced on February 5th that it had actually been successful. Um, so here's an article from Nature where it's tight. it says, first passages of rolled up Herculaneum scroll revealed. Researchers used artificial intelligence to decipher the text of 2,000-year-old charred papyrus scripts, unveiling musings on music and capers. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to say I called that one. That's a good one. I might put a little clip from our last forecast, a little two-minute clip. I'm going to put it in post here from when we talked about that because I, I wasn't like anticipating that that discussion or prediction would come true literally like a week or two after we had it, but it was a pretty, pretty striking one to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's definitely in the win column. Yeah. You got to take them when you can get them. So, um, all right. So that was one of the announcements that happened on that Mercury Pluto conjunction because it's also about like recovering lost things basically. And, you know, yeah, that was part of the discussion. So another aspect, though, of Mercury-Pluto um, that happened that day is um, on February 5th, King Charles announced that he had cancer. And this was also the same day as the Mercury-Pluto conjunction, which was interesting symbolically, partially because it was an announcement about his possible mortality and whether he would there was then a lot of discussions about whether he would die, whether this meant William was going to, his son was going to take over as king soon and so on and so forth, which is pretty fitting with that, I think, right? Yeah, well, just, you know, Mercury, Mercury is the announcement of or the conveying of information about something. And, um, you know, and the kind of what is conveyed or announced um, is characterized by the planet that Mercury is connected to, right? So, um, uh, you know, uh, making public uh, uh, a dire truth, right? Or, or uh, I mean, a life and death situation, right? Which is, that's, you know, that that folds neatly into the Darwinian understanding of evolution that Pluto brings up that I was just talking about. Um, I would also add that... <clears throat> Sometimes when people try to find a place for Pluto in the major arcana of the tarot, um, one sort of go-to answer that I like is the judgment card, not the death card, uh, but the judgment card, which often has an image of the last judgment in the Christian mythos, um, where at the very end of time, there's a decision about who's saved and who's not. I like to think of the Egyptian judgment of the soul after death, which is just as final a judgment, um, you know, where the heart is weighed against a feather and it determines your course for the rest of eternity, right? The human life being <laughs> uh, being temporary, but the judgment afterlife having much greater consequences. Um, and, you know, Pluto likes to present these sort of dire situations where things could go one way or another, and there's a massive difference between the two. 
Um, often uh, one way that it's not, as we say, that the judgment scenes are not quite right is that very often we have a choice to make. It's, you know, it's the road diverges um, and the two paths are incredibly different and irreconcilable. And we could say with the judgment scenes, the choices were what you did in life um, and then you're judged for them later. But generally we have that like stark splitting of the path um, with uh, with the judgment card and with with Pluto, right? Like, does he beat the cancer? Does he not beat the cancer? They're not... Um, they're not similar outcomes, right? Like they're they're very different. They have big meaning both ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in terms of that, one of the things I immediately thought of, because I've used uh, Prince William's chart as an example chart over the years, is just that he has um, Sagittarius rising. So I immediately thought of how later this year, starting in October, we'll get the first of a series of eclipses in Pisces. And since he has Sag rising, Pisces is his fourth house of parents. Mm -hmm. um, and that's striking because that was, of course, what was happening, as we saw just a year or two ago in Charles's own chart, when his mother, Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth died, and then he became mm -hmm. king, he was getting eclipses in his fourth and 10th houses. Mm -hmm. um, because for them, at least part of it is, you know, a parent dying, and then all of a sudden them becoming the, the ruler, the, becoming the king. Yeah, that makes sense. And the the Brit the British royals have, if I'm remembering correctly, a very eclipsy track record uh, of taking office and leaving this mortal coil. Yeah, that was what we found in the, Nick and I found in the eclipses episode, which is yeah. like every king basically in the in the 20th century um, kept basically dying, and then or one king would die, and then one would take over on eclipses it was so striking so we'll have to pay attention to that coming up here in the future and see see what happens yeah all right so um other thing with the mortality theme there was one other story which i thought was interesting i just saw it on social media briefly uh, a few weeks ago but it tied in with like the mortality theme with mercury conjunct pluto although it was an interesting inversion of it so like with king charles announcing the day of the mercury pluto conjunction that he had cancer and could potentially die from it. Um, I saw on social media, there was um, a woman named Kat Janice that was like a musician who went into hospice. She has cancer and she's dying, but she released like a music single in order to try to support her son that she's about to leave behind, who's just like a young boy uh, when she's gone. And her single went viral and, and started getting hundreds and thousands, maybe millions of views at this point. And I looked up her chart and she has Mercury at zero degrees of Aquarius and her son at one degree of Aquarius. So Pluto literally had gone into Aquarius and was conjoining her Mercury. And all of a sudden her single blows up, but it's partially blowing up because the context of social media is that she's dying basically. And that this woman you know, will only last for for weeks, probably at best, if she's in hospice at this point. And that it was kind of tragic seeing then Mercury conjoining Pluto. And then of course, Mercury will conjoin her son or, or Pluto will conjoin her son at one degree of Aquarius. And she's in hospice and will probably pass away. So there's something very striking about that to me as a, like an inversion of what we saw with King Charles there and and starting to see early stories of people with placements in the early degrees of Aquarius or fixed signs getting hit by Pluto and some of the stories that are coming out of that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that well, that, so that, um, yeah, that, that's a great example. Um, and it brings up 
Pluto's um, uh, uh, Pluto's relationship to scale, um, right? Pluto can take something tiny and make it huge, and it can make something huge and utterly conceal it, right? Uh, as best expressed by Alan White uh, 20 plus years ago, right? It takes, uh, I don't think I can do the Alan White voice, but it uh, takes a Pluto take, Pluto uh, takes a tiny thing and makes it a big fucking deal, makes something gigantic and makes it, you know, um, subatomic in scale. Um, <clears throat> paraphrasing. Um, but we have that um we have that with attention socially, like that Pluto does that with um uh, what we call fame, right? Where um I've seen time and time again, one of the things that Pluto does is it's um it, that there's a, a near instantaneous rise from complete obscurity to being uh, to all, all eyes on me uh, on a on a on a cultural level that happened with the the author of I believe Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, I think I'm thinking of the right. Yeah, I, I believe Pluto went over her son um, as she went from being a fan fiction author um, to being the author of something that everyone in the culture was reacting to. That said, um, though that um, <clears throat> that. Um, we, I get some people might call it, call it a rise from obscurity that like massive change in scale of attention uh, often has lots of negative effects as well. It's not, um, it's not a freebie, you know, from Pluto. Yeah. Pluto doesn't usually give things for free and, and sometimes that can be good and sometimes that can be bad. So, um, yeah, so that's another manifestation of that, but I'll be tracking other stories like that and paying attention to how Pluto is hitting uh, people with early Aquarius placements. So in other Mercury conjunct Pluto news, the other major thing that happened around that time that was notable in the news and that a lot of people were talking about was um, the former Fox News host Tucker Carlson went to Russia and interviewed Vladimir Putin uh, for some reason. And I looked up the date because the, the I looked up the date and the interview took place on February 6th, 2024, which was just after the Mercury-Pluto conjunction while it was still within one degree. Yeah, um, really tight. Yeah. And um, I know you and I, I were both paying attention to that because we've, of course, talked about the Ukraine war a lot over the past few years and everything else. And um, well, and just yeah. Russia, Russia in the context of the Saturn-Neptune cycle, which we've been talking about for years, because something really interesting and dramatic happens during Saturn Neptune to Russia, at least for the last 150 years. Um, and so, yeah, we've been keeping an eye on it. Yeah. So, and it also seemed very Mercury Pluto to me because it seemed like an obvious attempt um, on both of their parts to do a bit of propaganda, um, either to influence views in the U S about Russia or to influence views about the Ukraine war, other things like that, um, which sort of fit the bill in terms of the Mercury-Pluto conjunction as well? Yeah. I, I mean, it's 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 so Mercury-Pluto that it's almost hard to explain all the ways that that is Mercury-Pluto uh, on at the like very uh, in the foyer of how the, uh, of how many ways that's Mercury-Pluto. We have just like Mercury, uh, Mercury's social role is as a interviewer, media person, journalist. And then Pluto's social role is somebody who is incredibly powerful and scary and shadowy, right? Like that, that the literally, you know, Pluto or Hades is the dark lord. 
And so um, you have literally the people fitting those social roles together in interview with, you know, <laughs> with uh, with Hades, or at least culturally seen as Hades. Um, so there, there's that. Then there's also the content, right? Like Pluto shows the pressure of power on things, um, <clears throat> power being um, often invisible by nature, but deforming um, what is visible, right? Increasing the scale of certain things um, and then concealing other things. And there's so many power dynamics that go, that went into that interview. Like what, you know, there, there's no way uh, it would be absurd to imagine that taking place without all participants having a very clear idea of what they wanted it to be and invisibly, you know, quietly trying to make it what it is. Um, <clears throat> and then you just imagine, you know, <clears throat> uh, interviewing um, any, like any world leader, but especially Vladimir Putin, while the, while Russia's in the middle of a war and <clears throat> tensions with the West are escalating, like the amount of security Right. Like just the pressure, like the, you would feel, I don't know. I just imagine like you would feel like you were in the underworld and that death was everywhere. Um, and, and so on and so on. And that's like two of the 17 ways that is an extremely Mercury Pluto situation. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, well, and I saw it as um, probably early attempt and probably the first, but not the last, but probably a preview of what we'll see in terms of attempts to influence the U.S. election this year because of how that would affect the outcome of the war between Russia and Ukraine and everything else. So we'll have to pay attention to if further aspects or further activations of that of Pluto and Mercury-Pluto this year don't bring up similar uh, things in the future over the next several months. Um, and you mentioned death. And of course, the other major thing that happened in connection with that is just a few days after the interview was released. Um, Alexei Navalny, which is uh, Putin's primary political opponent who had been um, thrown in prison, was mysteriously killed or died in prison, which was sort of like widely seen as um, probably not accidental or not a natural death. Um, and having the death of Putin's political opponent right after that big interview came out seemed some sort of seemed connected or seemed like some sort of message it's unclear like what the message was but uh, the timing was pretty striking it, it it would be very strange if it was a coincidence but yeah. yeah he i did some research on that yeah he basically just collapsed and died um but this is somebody who had been poisoned a few years ago who knows who poisoned him <laughs> right um there there's uh you know pretty meaningful speculation um but yeah and as the you know as a well I don't know if it's a reaction to it, but it was stated, the United States stated that a whole massive round of new sanctions, which were probably probably have other reasons than Navalny's death. Um, you know, there's a massive round of new sanctions that just are going into effect on Russia and various entities and individuals that are um, connected with Russia and financing. So like big, um, again, like, I don't, I don't know if it's, it's sort of like, uh, I, I don't. I doubt that that entire sanctions package was just made up in response to Navalny's passing, um, but that that was the stated uh, that that was the thing that was that was stated. Like we're doing that. Like you you know you arrange for Navalny's death, we do this, but it's part of that ongoing escalation. Um, 
but yeah, massive, massive sanctions, massive new sanctions package um, from the U.S. on Russia and Russian connected things, mostly targeting, uh, mostly targeting uh, uh, ways that uh, military or economic financing for the the Russo-Ukrainian war on the Russian side is being done. Yeah. So um, Lisa Shine pointed out that Navalny had Saturn at the end of cancer. So transiting Pluto had been opposing that, um, which is striking in terms of some of the last bits of that transit and different people that have had that placement over the past few years and some of the most extreme manifestations of it. Yeah. And really quickly, like, so he was poisoned like 2020, 21. And then, or actually, so basically he um, he's been in prison since uh, the Saturn Pluto opposite his Saturn. Um, so he got poison and then did recovery in Germany and then went to Russia and then got in prison for a short thing. And then they added additional charges and he was convicted and went from like a two year sentence to a nine year sentence to a 19 year sentence. But basically he's been in prison since um since pluto um pluto directly opposed to saturn and cancer just to add some more to that okay yeah so and he's and, and just for like pluto like pluto and pluto and aquarius sort of saturn ruled pluto landscapes um you know he died in a uh facility in the arctic um that was during soviet times a gulag right so you know sub <laughs> like minus 30 degrees outside like it's as remote um and in uh, frigid and saturnian um a sort of landscape as you can imagine yeah it looks like his saturn was at 2955 cancer so basically as late in cancer as you can get so the pluto in early aquarius is still very much um opposing that um yeah so that is that story moving on to other news um, the Grammys happened, which is an award show in the US, and I needed to mention it because I have to do a bit of a victory lap for another prediction that I made about Miley Cyrus um, back in 2020. She had such a well-placed Saturn in the 10th house in a day chart in its own sign, having a nice trine with Jupiter, uh, that I made a prediction back in 2020 just saying, calling it now Miley Cyrus as a Saturn return in Aquarius success story. And what happened is that during the course of her Saturn return, she released this hit single, Flowers, that was like wildly successful. And then this month, she just won a, her first Grammy for it. So she won a pretty major award as a musician and was like super happy and excited about that. And it was like a huge um, success story, basically, I think, coming out of her Saturn return. So that was one of the Saturn Return success stories that I mentioned in the Saturn Return episode that I just recorded the other day that I'm getting ready to release now. I don't know if it'll be out before or after this forecast, but it's nice. Um, yeah, sometimes just like seeing certain ones coming up, especially when a planet's very well placed in a person's chart and being able to make like a, a good prediction about um, success and hitting the high point of a person's career. Yeah, yeah, perfect. All right. So that happened. Um, there was one other Saturn thing that happened also at the Grammys, which is um, Tracy Chapman, who was having her second Saturn return, made an appearance and did a duet at the Grammys where there was this whole situation where last year, a cover of her song Fast Car topped the US country charts. And she ended up doing a duet with the, the guy who 
did the cover basically and it was like this really striking really touching cover that they did at the grammys but it was striking also because she has saturn in early pisces and saturn um retrograded back to zero pisces um over the winter so this was partially like her second saturn return and it was an interesting saturn return moment that sort of harkened back to the 1990s um, when Saturn was last in Pisces and she was last, you know, releasing and doing some major work and major albums. So with, yeah, um, great song. Uh, I, I have another example that's um, from something born right around the same time as Tracy Chapman, also having its second Saturn return. Um, Dune, uh, Dune 2 comes out in a week. Um, it'll be the sun on Saturn and Pisces. Dune was born with Saturn and Pisces. And, you know, and the it's part two, the sequel is misleading. It's literally just the second half of the book. And so even though the first part came out Saturn and Aquarius, which is not doing Saturn return, the actual book gets finished theatrically, right? Um, during um, uh, during Saturn and Pisces, right? So it's happy second Saturn return to Dune. I've mentioned before with Saturn and Pisces um, that Saturn and Pisces, um, uh, during Saturn and Pisces, we have some real high points for works of imagination, right? The first Game of Thrones book, um, uh, the uh, <laughs> the premiere of the Elder Scrolls series, Dune, The Call of Cthulhu, a bunch of stuff, uh, Hobbit. Um, so yeah, Dune, work of Saturn and Pisces. First book is complete in cinematic format with um the sun conjunct saturn and pisces really looking forward to it perfect saturn and pisces story um without uh without revealing any spoilers the protagonist so if saturn and pisces right it's it's saturn is your job it's what's expected of you it's what you're um pushed to deal with it's necessity like the protagonist is basically struggling with what might be a prophecy about their destiny, very very Pisces, or it actually might be uh, all a series of contrived lies um, and manipulations, right? It's but the the person feels like they are on rails um, towards an outcome, and half of the time that's glorious and destined, and other times that is uh, horrific, um, and they are very concerned about where. Uh, where destiny or maybe it's not destiny seems to be taking them yeah and he's like a savior figure as well or set up as like a savior figure in the in the prophecy at least in that that universe right, right. yeah it's a savior question mark right um that's a good one also because it's striking because that's of saturn and pisces in terms of world building i think is a really good saturn and pisces keyword i'm realizing um, because you know you have these people that create these entire worlds, but it also sets up like a precedent about what's possible in terms of fantasy and in terms of um, creating something or the structure of something uh, in fantasy, basically. Um, and Dune is a great example of that because of how it then inspired subsequent um, people like George Lucas and like Star Wars was like very much influenced by Dune. And then he went off and created his own like other universe, but he was sort of like inspired by the fact that you could do that through this this earlier work or how like, um, you know, Tolkien's work with like the Lord of the Rings, how that ended up influencing and really setting the standard for later fantasy authors like, you know, George R. R. Martin with Game of Thrones or even, um, you know, uh, the Harry Potter world and everything like that. Like you can yeah. see 
the influence of these earlier earlier worlds. Yeah, because they're creating a space that then people can enter, travel through, have be inspired by. Worth noting, there's no Dungeons and Dragons without Tolkien. Like there was mm. a huge inspiration um, in the late 70s. Um, <clears throat> Gary Gygax, who of course has tons of stuff in Pi or important stuff in Pisces. Um, you know, like they're, they're, they took wargaming with miniatures rules and they're like, but what if we have like adventures and quests like Lord of the Rings? Like that's basically the genesis of, of tabletop role-playing games. Okay. Let's, that's amazing. Um, let's project that out then. And let's say based on that, we can predict during the Saturn and Pisces period that's started a year ago and is going to last for what another year or two that somebody will probably create um, some sort of fantasy world and they will do a lot of world building within that, which will end up becoming so influential that it'll set up the paradigm either as the evolution of a previous fantasy world type lineage, or it will create a new fantasy world sort of lineage that will influence many other types of like world building fantasies in the future. Yeah, that there will be some kind of new classic that is created. I would say published, but it might not be literary in its first medium. Um, and yeah, the, um, how should I say, and you see with the previous classics that were born under Saturn and Pisces, they get, you know, new re reiterations. Like, I don't know if, um, you know, George R. R. Martin will finish Winds of Winter. I kind of do think he'll get something out by the end of Saturn and Pisces, but there are a bunch of new Game of Thrones world shows uh, that are going to come out during this time. Um, the next Elder Scrolls, the sequel to Skyrim, will most likely come out Saturn and Pisces. Um, you know, we have Dune, which was two Saturn and Pisces ago. Like you both get, so how should we say, the longevity of a built world um, is further reinforced or, or confirmed as Saturn does during this time. But every other time we've gotten new worlds. So that's a that's a great turning that into prediction. There will be something, and maybe we won't notice it until years later, um, but some sort of new world building will happen during this time that that 30 years from now we'll look back and say, oh, what a classic. Of course it happened during Saturn and Pisces. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. I think that's good. Um, moving on. The one I think one of the last things I wanted to mention was um I released uh I did an episode earlier this month uh on Proclus, and we had like prepared for it. We've been talking about doing it for years, me and Jose, and um he had done his dissertation on Proclus and literally we've been talking about doing that episode for a decade. I finally felt like it was time and we did it partially because I was inspired by getting back into Plato after doing the Lots episode where we talked about the myth of Ur. So in the this Proclus episode, we talked about the Timaeus. I released the episode and then I didn't realize that I was just not paying attention. I realized a day later after I released it that I released it like basically right on Proclus's birthday and he was born, you know, over a thousand years ago. So it's just like a great reminder that our charts continue to live on after we die for essentially as long as the memory of our life continues to echo and like and influence things. And I tried to like summarize that in a tweet and this is what I came up with. Let me know what you think. I said our birth charts continue to live on after we die because the memory of what we did in life echoes in time. So that was my attempt to like sort of summarize that principle. I'm still working on that uh, and may do an episode on it at some point, but 
uh, it got me thinking about that topic again. Yeah, that that's a hundred percent a thing. I just saw that in my work with the chart of Niccolo Machiavelli, right? The uh, infamous author of The Prince. And so, um, I, I was actually I actually used Machiavelli's chart as a, a test for my my year two class. Um, they had to tell me what happened to this native in um, in fifteen thirteen, which is when he finished writing The Prince. Um, however, when you look at his situation, let's say just from uh, zodiacal releasing, it's a great, it's really supportive of writing or finishing a potentially enduring great work, but it's not good for success in the world. Um, it's not good for like wealth, reputation or health. And so it's a very tiny uh, publication that year. It doesn't really have an impact on the world until 18 years later, um, where uh, at which point he's quite dead. But his zodiacal releasing looks fantastic. Um, it's a better uh, it's a better ZR period by far than what he has in life, right? And so it's like, yeah. oh, he he achieves fame and notoriety um, exactly when ZR said he just didn't live to see it. Yeah, I have an example. My favorite example and my first one of that was um with Vincent van Gogh, uh, because he, mm. you know, he never sold like a single painting in life. Um, but it was only after his death that he became famous, partially due to the promotion of his work by his wife's partner, or by his brother's partner, his brother's wife. Um, and his zodiac releasing periods just go crazy once he starts actually gaining notoriety as a as a painter but it's after he already died so i think this is a whole like category of i'm calling like posthumous astrology um mm -hmm. that i'm gonna i'm talking to Gen it's also interested in that we're talking about maybe doing an episode one of these days so we'll see we'll see what happens yeah that would be fun that'd be fun feel free to use uh machiavelli okay i will remember that and give you a shout out um, all right. You had uh, another news story. I know this is starting to go long at 106. Yeah, but... we can do some of this. This is um, um, quick and to the point. This is sort of dangerously on the nose. So right on the Mars-Pluto conjunction, um, there is an announcement that the U.S. Uh, that US intelligence agencies um, have uh, some sort of information about Russian space nukes and all the media outlets pick it up. It's all, oh my God, Russian space nukes. Um, that's as Mars-Pluto in Aquarius as possible, right? Nukes is Mars-Pluto, but, and this is funny, it's like for anything Pluto and Aquarius add in space or AI powered or autonomous to like, <laughs> you just add the, the Pluto and Aquarius buzzword and your delineation becomes exactly right. Like that is, that's almost like a text generator. Like, okay, Mars, Pluto, you know, nuclear weapons in Aquarius in space. Yeah, that's perfect. I couldn't be more on the nose. Yeah. It, um, and yeah, it's, yeah. And so let me know if you, if you or anyone in the audience has any ideas, what are the other, what are the other um, uh, little phrases you add to make it Aquarius, right? Blah, 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 in space, uh, AI powered, fill in the blank, autonomous, fill in the blank. Like if you had autonomous AI powered Russian nukes in space, right? That would be the most <laughs> Aquarius thing ever. Yeah, that's terrifying. Um, that's also terrifying because also just if that's a signature for like space war or like future space wars, um, we'll have to pay attention to that. 
Yeah, well, and that's part of the Pluto part is like, maybe like they're the Russian government denies it, which maybe maybe they're telling the truth. Maybe they're not. Maybe there's real information about it. Maybe there's not. With Pluto, it's like there's that concealment element. Pluto, as we said, makes things sometimes hyper visible that were obscure, but it also um, hides things just as much likes to hide things. So it's like and leaves you to wonder. Like, I don't know, are there, what, what kind of nuclear weapon is it? Is it a, you know, um, and the mind gets to, to, to wander and wander and, um, you know, stare into the abyss. Yeah, for sure. Um, there was other Mars Pluto stuff. Um, the Super Bowl happened. I don't have anything to say astrologically about that, except for like, what the hell is happening in Travis Kelsey's chart right now? Because he seems like he's having like the greatest year ever. Like he, you know, pursued and and somehow got into a relationship with one of the big, the biggest like pop star, one of the biggest pop stars in the world uh, last summer. And now all of a sudden he's like the quarterback who won the Super Bowl just now. So I don't know. I don't think we have a birth time for him, but it would be interesting to do a chart study of just like what happens when somebody's just like winning in multiple areas of life, evidently, and what mm -hmm. that looks like. Um, also, at the same time, though, um, on the Super Bowl, Israel launched a strike on Rafa on February 11th that coincided with the Mars-Pluto conjunction. And there was an announcement shortly after that that you pointed out, Austin, that um, that they're supposed to potentially like storm Rafa. Um, and this is building up to a lot of stuff, of course, that we're, we're paying attention to and we mentioned the year ahead forecast of that libra eclipse that's actually going to happen that we're going to talk about later in this forecast yeah the the announcement was basically that um like the from the israel that the operation would not be complete until they did a thing on rafa which is a huge concern because a lot of the uh palestinian um civilians uh that have fleed fled from Gaza are in Rafa. And so, you know, it's a big deal. It has potentially horrific implications. Um, and, you know, right now they're doing some peace talks, which I um, wish I had faith would have any real results. Um, but based on statements put out by Israel, it looks like the assault on Rafa is scheduled to occur at the end of March, which is our huge danger zone um that we talked about in the yearly um you know it's eclipses and mars saturn and mercury retrograde um and so i hope that is not the case but that is the implication and it is it's a little chilling to see a statement um about an assault go out like oh we're probably going to do this on a mars pluto conjunction like very tightly it's right. the same it's basically within 12 hours of the the Russian space nukes thing. It's another Mars Pluto. Um, uh, it's another like exact Mars Pluto hit. Right. Cause the Mars Pluto square was the main signature that happened on the, the day of the attack on October in October, uh, you know, um, but then also the Libra eclipse happened right after that in mid October as well. And so we know that this upcoming eclipse that's going to be in Libra later in March is is going to be in Libra. So it's going to connect events from six months earlier that happened on October and represent a continuation or the next turning point and culmination of that, um, both in terms of ongoing things with Israel and Palestine, but also we know even in Netanyahu's chart, who was born the day of a Libra eclipse, that it's something important for him as well. Um, 
yeah so a lot of stuff going on there yeah um so one more mars pluto thing that's kind of actually a uranus jupiter thing um so also on the exact mars pluto conjunction um the uh i don't know uh, what the name of the movement is um on the internet the the indian farmers protest which um was a huge deal in 2020 2021 um restarted they basically announced a, a restart and this is this is not like a few people with with you know standing in a picket with signs like this is columns of people with tractors driving into cities and the uh, police setting up barricades and having riot gear like it's a, it was a big deal last time and it's a big deal this time that restarted on february 13th and is ongoing um and that um that along with the uh the south korean doctor's strike um in which two-thirds of the doctors um walked out of the hospitals to protest conditions made me remember that we have this um this this uh, uh as we say tightening conjunction between jupiter and uranus and taurus which is very consistently over the last nine or ten months since it's been in effect um given us like big labor uh big labor protests um and that um um sure there's pluto mars but part of mars moving into aquarius is coming to square jupiter and uranus and therefore activate them and so we have you know a big notable uh labor protests um happening right now and they're not all american um so and that's you know that's a thing we get um uh with that jupiter uranus titans it gets closer and more powerful throughout all of march and then is perfect uh in april so that's also that jupiter uranus is still happening um again yeah, there are there are also um farmer protests in uh in various parts of the eu but just like that that theme didn't go away because pluto and aquarius is um you know putting chips in people's heads it's all all happening <laughs> right yes it is all happening at once um all right anything else before we wrap up the news section i mean there's so much i think that's a good survey yeah oh one one last thing right just and yet another annoyingly on on brand uh pluto and aquarius thing uh, we just had the first commercial vehicle land on the moon. It was uh, Intuitive Machines, Intuitive Machines Nova Sea Lander, right? Just throw that into the Pluto and Aquarius pile. Okay, yeah, that could be really important for the future. Um, you know, the probably the first of many. Yeah, for, yeah, no doubt. All right. Well, a lot of a lot of first, a lot of early things happening this month. Obviously, that are going to be the seeds cuz you know there were conjunctions there's a lot of conjunctions that happen this month of inner planets with pluto and a conjunction always sets the seeds of something that will then grow and develop in the future so that's one of the reasons we wanted to do this review of all these news stories as quickly as we could to point this out because these are going to be themes that we're going to be coming back to over and over again over the next 20 years as all of these inner planets continually um have this cycle with pluto and come back and conjoin it periodically over the next 20 years, we'll see the further evolution and development of many of the stories that we've mentioned here. So it'll be interesting to come back to it for a long time in the future and keep uh, checking in. Yeah. Yeah. This was our, you know, this was, uh, I believe we phrased it as the, uh, this was the the season premiere uh, of the first season of Pluto and Aquarius. 
and it's going to run for 20 seasons. Yeah. Hope you like well, the show. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, we'll see if we can renew, if the show gets canceled or renewed, or if it keeps getting renewed, I think it, we're going to get renewed for 20 years. So let's see how it goes. Um, all right. I think that's good for a news section. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back. All right. Uh, hey, Austin, did you know that our good friend, Jenny Nicholas, has actually launched an astrology app? You know, I heard something about that. I have this vague, hazy memory of you reading ad spots maybe 10 or 15 times, but I just kind of zone out and uh, start picking at my fingernails. But I'd love to know more. I don't recall that, but I'm glad to inform you that Shani has an amazing astrology app, and it's actually the number one astrology app for self-discovery, mindfulness, and healing. So one of the things that I think you'll like the most, Austin, is that it will send you push notifications each time there's a major astrological transit that's happening in the sky, including like the new moon, uh, different ingresses of like Mercury and Mars, even Pluto, uh, and other things like that. That's very useful. It is very useful to get that kind of background information. So for me, I like the app because it has a nice blend of modern and traditional astrology. It uses whole sign houses, uh, also sends you the notifications. Most importantly, also has an Android version as well as an iPhone version. So it's super useful for those of us. I don't remember if you're iPhone or Android, Austin. I tried Android for a little bit. Um, I just sort of, I just have Kate's hand-me-down phones. I just have iPhones because Kate does and I get the old ones and I don't care, uh, enough to, I, I thought I was going to be an Android guy for like 10 minutes and I got one. Um, but it was much easier just, uh, just inheriting Kate's phones. But okay. for, for that 17 minutes that I, uh, was on Android, it would have been nice to have the option to keep using Channy's app. Exactly. So Chenny's app, uh, designed to make astrology both accessible as well as useful, the app combines ancient astrological wisdom with meditation and mindfulness to help you foster your relationship with the sky and support your personal growth. From personalized readings to real-time updates on how the current astrology is impacting you, it features everything you need to navigate life's ups and downs. So this includes detailed birth chart breakdowns, daily horoscopes, current sky horoscopes, transit readings, intel on the current moon phase and sign, weekly sign-specific audio readings from Chenny Nicholas, year-ahead forecasts, and more. So the app is free to download on iOS and Android by just going to their app stores. So search for Chenny, C-H-A-N-I, in the app store and you'll find it, or you can get more information by visiting app.chenny.com. All right, shout out to Chenny and thanks for sponsoring this episode. Yeah, congratulations on having the number one app. Yeah, well, and and being such a baller in creating like an astrology app, which is like way light years ahead of of us and other things, we should have we should have created an app like a long time ago for like the podcast or other things like that. Maybe you should have. Maybe I should have. Yeah, you're not. I don't think that was ever. I don't think that was that was ever in my uh, in my stars. You're not an app guy. You could create like the Deccan's app. No. No, I do. Um. <laughs> Uh, I don't, I don't use, I like I use the, um, uh, the like driving app on my phone. If I'm going to a place I haven't been to before and that's about it. Okay. I'm, uh, for some reason I have uh, a very emotionally Luddite reaction to apps and phones and all of that. 
I, I yes, I can't explain. I was very, I was like technophilic when I was younger, but um, yeah, I just um, just just don't use them for anything. I use them as minimally as possible, and I do it resentfully. Except for the Chani app, which has won your heart over uh, and is a sponsor for this episode. So well, let, let, let's not let's not fib. But what I will say is, if I were okay. going to use an astrology app, it would one hundred percent be Chani's. All right, that's which that's is good the enough. strongest endorsement I can give to any app. Yeah, that is a ringing endorsement for you as a as a luddite. All right, cool. Well, shout out to Chani. Um, let's transition into talking about the forecast for March, shall we? Do it. All right, here we go. So I'm going to put up the planetary alignments calendar again, just to give people a glance at what we're going to be talking about here and to situate the astrological landscape for this month with all of the major alignments and all the lunations. All right. So right now though, so we're recording this, I forgot to give the date on Saturday, February 24th, 2024, starting at what we use like cancer rising, I think a couple of hours ago. Starting at cancer um, rising in Colorado. In Colorado and Denver. So one of the things about recording it today, we had to get it recorded so we could get it out by the end of the month. But this is before the Mercury-Mars-Saturn conjunction or Mercury-Sun-Saturn um, conjunction that's happening mm -hmm. in Pisces here in a few days, right? Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. I was actually, it was one of the only things we didn't talk about ahead of time that I was thinking. I was like, that's technically February, but it's the future from this point in time. And it's a pretty rare configuration. We have Mercury, Sun, Saturn all in the same degree. Um, two planets making their superior conjunction to the Sun, um, both of which individually would be meaningful. Um, and you know, giving us a very, very interesting triple conjunction um, that I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I didn't look at how often that happens. I don't think we've had a Mercury Sun Saturn conjunction for many, 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 many years this perfect. Yeah, so that's really striking. And we're gonna get the the heaviness on the one hand of that. Like Saturn has a very sobering um influence or set of significations, um, both when it's conjoining Mercury as well as when it's conjoining the Sun. Um, but we have on the one hand, we're opening the month with that heavy emphasis on Pisces and the Pisces planets and emphasizing the Saturn-Neptune conjunction, but also still having Venus and Mars transiting through Aquarius for a good chunk of the first part of February. So those are the two sort of primary dueling energies that are pulling us in different directions. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And we, yeah, we, and the emphasis for um, March is like uh there the the strong pisces em emphasis doesn't disappear uh it does change as different planets enter and leave pisces we've still got the uh we've still got minimum three planets in pisces um uh, all month right now we have four there will be a period where there will be five um so huge pisces emphasis but um definite aquarius emphasis and then we'll be getting a growing aries uh influence throughout the month but focus is definitely Pisces and Saturn Neptune right which have been there for it'll be a year on March 7th that we that we've had Saturn and Pisces so uh, congratulations to us <laughs> um, yeah the boundaries between what's real and what's not real are definitely breaking down and all sorts of borders and other 
um, things that separate people are starting to break down in different ways, uh, sometimes for good and other times not so good. Yeah. And one of the things that I expected predicted with the movement of Saturn into Pisces out of Capricorn Aquarius, where it's very strong, is this phenomenon of just like growing chaos and losing control. Um, we don't like to, you know, we're, uh, human beings have a very interesting relationship to control because we don't like to be controlled. We don't like to not have choices. But at the same time, we don't like it when things are out of control. Right. And there's a growing sort of gestalt whenever you look at the news. It's like, oh, things are kind of out of control. Like there are there are multiple points of, um, as we say, important chaos uh, in the world, like a consequential chaos um, that, um, <laughs> right? And maybe sometimes chaos is, uh, sometimes uh, chaos is a meaningful opponent to unjust order. And sometimes it is its own villain, but there's just this like growing out of controlness with like Saturn being in a sign where it kind of doesn't belong and doesn't have, um, doesn't have much to work with. You know, Pisces isn't full of, um, uh, isn't stacked with, uh, with tools for creating order. Yeah. There's also this like indeterminacy to Pisces and the mutable yeah. signs that I've been reflecting on a lot and getting much more acquainted with the past year. Saturn's been in Pisces that it like, it really thrives. Like Pisces really thrives in not making a choice and, and being a, sort of in between in the sense of like, you could do that. You could not do that, but for now, let's not decide. Uh, mm -hmm. and, sort of decide later, let's put it off until later, basically like making that decision until later, which creates this feeling where everything's like up in the air, uh, especially for like other people. Um, but it's an interesting feeling that we're really like settling into of like indeterminacy. Yeah. Yeah. There's a really, there's a deep ambivalence uh, to, as you said, mutable signs in general, but Pisces most of all, right? Where it's like with Gemini, you might have um, sort of indeterminacy between two stark polarized alternatives. Um, whereas with Pisces, it's like just let both exist, right? It's the two fish um, chained at the mouth, uh, which can only swim in a spiral, right? They can't go in a they can't go in a straight line if you're two fish chained at the mouth. Uh, you could be wielded as nunchucks, but. Um, <clears throat> That would be great. I wish that was the zodiac Which, sign for for Pisces. I mean, it is. It's just I mean, that no, yeah. no one has fully grasped it and uh, you know obtained the power of fish chucks. Which right, it required will... a Mars and Pisces to to fully envision this. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so you know the uh, the skies will be doling out fish chucks at the end of the month when uh, Mars enters Pisces. Um. Oh my God, that's cracking me up. All right, so let's look at Mars because Mars does, there's some other action before we get to the fish yeah. chuck section of the month, which is with Mars, where we open the month with Mars at 13 degrees of Aquarius. So it's just coming off of the Mars-Jupiter square at the end of the month. It's, we're coming off of the triple conjunction of planets in Pisces, but Mars is heading straight into, and Venus is also heading into a square with Uranus at 19 degrees of Taurus so that we open up the month with this kind of unexpected and disruptive energy. I feel like where first Venus hits a square with Uranus by March 2nd and March 3rd, 
And then not long after that, we get Mars catching up to and hitting a square with Uranus on March 9th and March 10th. So let's talk about the Venus one first and then go into Mars. Um, what are Venus Uranus things when it comes to a square between Venus and Aquarius and Uranus in Taurus? There's like a disruptive aesthetic quality to it, um, a disruptive quality in terms of relationships and relating um, in some sense. Yeah, well, and uh, the we're so we're dealing with either a change that is necessary in order to obtain peace or pleasure, right? Or something that disrupts peace or accord or pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. And so then if it's a disruption, then we have to figure out how to adapt to that, right? Or if it's, uh, you know, peace, pleasure, you know, a good Venusian state, um, peace, pleasure, accord is maybe it can, maybe it's not present, but can be obtained if like, uh, if a really, uh, if a, uh, a, a relatively radical shift uh, occurs, right? Like it's the, the Venus Uranus has this like, well, this isn't working, but maybe there is something that can work. Um, or like this yeah. is working until this happened. How do we, how do we adapt to that? Um, and so with, with, a, with the two being in a square here, um, the, you know, it's, uh, as you say, it's a powerful entanglement. Uh, it's a, it's a very powerful angle of relationship. It's not to be ignored, but it's, it's this sort of adaptational question is like, how do you deal with the change that's disrupting the thing or how do you disrupt the thing so that it works? Yeah. I like that, especially because Venus is in the superior position earlier in zodiacal order. So it's like Venus is trying to keep a lid on or figure out how to deal with the disruption of Uranus and still smooth things over. So how do you smooth over something once it has been disrupted and how do you um, integrate flexibility into your life and the ability to roll with unexpected events and still find a harmonious way to bring things to some sort of conclusion despite unexpected like jolts uh, to whatever the program was or whatever you thought was going to be fixed and stable. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's worth noting that Venus is in kind of a rough condition here, right? Um, Venus is still within, oh, within orb of Mars is still getting that, you know, Venus and Mars are opposed in the sense that Venus likes everybody to get along. Um, Mars, um, likes to get it, likes to shake the bottle and get the humans to fight. Um, so it's disruptive to Venus's let's, let's all have a, a good time, um, priority. And then with the, with, the with the square to Uranus, that's, uh, it's making it harder for Venus to create peace, accord, pleasure, good times, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's a challenging, um, point for Venus. Yeah. One well, sometimes Venus and Uranus combinations do very well if you're just able to figure out that thing that is outside of the norm, that is off the beaten path, that is like eccentric or revolutionary or even like weird. Um, and sometimes if you incorporate that, uh, especially if you're doing something with aesthetics or with art, um, but even in relationships or other Venusian things, usually there can be very positive manifestations of that, even if the transition into it is a little bit, um, you know, disjointed. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a good go-to move for hard aspects between Venus and Uranus, if you're in a relationship is let's do, let's do something different tonight. 
right? Like, let's, if we go out all the time, let's stay home. If we stay home all the time, let's go out. Let's, let's go to the, let's go to the museum and look at dinosaur bones. Like, you know, just, just um, something to like shake things up a little bit. Yeah, that's perfect. Something to shake things up a little bit. That would be our keyword for those dates here in March 3rd, especially when that goes exact. Um, let's move on. So we're moving after that to the next alignment, which is the Mars-Uranus square. And this gets us into the territory of our first lunation of the month, where um, we have a new moon in the sign of Pisces going exact on what March late on that March 9th and early on the 10th, basically at about 20 degrees of Pisces. Um, Mercury has just entered into Aries right before that, and Mars is has just squared Uranus basically right before that as well. So the Mars Uranus square is really giving us one of the main signatures of our first lunation of the month. Yeah, this is a big, um, th th this is a like a calendar day worth circling in March. Um, just because there's there are three significant things that happen all on the same day, right? Um, um, two of them are beginning uh, sort of a new phase, the new moon, um, right? Like that's a that's a, a reset of the lunar month, um, and then Mercury changing signs. It's worth noting Mercury is going to be in Aries well into almost the end of April. Uh, it actually might be the end of april might be past the end of april but mercury is going to retrograde in aries and so this is not like a quick three weeks in a sign um it's mercury in aries for the next basically a little under two months and that happens the same day as the new moon it happens the same day <clears throat> excuse me as the mars square uranus right um very and mars mars uranus touches especially angular touches squares uh, are very disruptive um, because Mars likes disruption and Uranus likes disruption. And so, um, you know, it's uh, shit, shit, I believe uh, the kids say shit pops off, um, you know, like firecrackers with uh, Mars Uranus touches. And it's worth noting that Mercury moving into Aries means that Mercury uh, as the, the megaphone, the interviewer, the uh, voice to text transcriber is <clears throat> interested in conveying the messages of Mars, right? And at a time where Mars is doing a pretty interesting thing. Yeah. So interesting things. So Mars, you're in a squares. Keywords for that can be like um, a sudden unexpected disruption. Sometimes that disruption can be like violent or like jolting. Um, sometimes it can be a technological disruption because Uranus has that quality of the unexpected disruption or the revolutionary, whereas Mars has this quality of like cutting things off or like severing things. So especially when they align in a square, there can be an unexpected severing of two things, either in terms of a relationship or in terms of a situation of some sort, um, having things prematurely cut off in a way that you're not anticipating at the time yeah with uh with mars uranus you're looking at um uh let's see you're looking at like the surprise attack where like oh mm -hmm. my god that's where the conflict is right um i didn't i wasn't expecting to have to deal with conflict in this area um you also have a uh, sort of a long surprise attack um one of the things that 
uh, we see in the world is um, sort of uh, random explosions, not random, but like, oh, nobody knew that there was all of, uh, like there, there, there are these, oh, there's this old weapons depot and this leaked and the whole thing went up uh, all of a sudden, or there's this invisible weakness in this building and there's this little bit of a uh, little bit of stress put on it and the whole thing fell down like surprise mars like surprise destruction is a thing with uh with mars uranus and yeah. it's usually it's you real quick it's usually like a straw breaking the camel's back or what is it? it's the is it jenga where you like uh take out the the pieces from uh from the tower it's like the one last yeah. thing or the 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 cigarette dropped near the oil drum yeah also internally there can be like this rest restlessness mm -hmm. um because uranus is is certainly you know it's not happy just like doing the same thing over and over again and mars also has this impetuousness to it so sometimes people may find themselves in a circumstance or a situation under this alignment where they just have the impulse to act and the, the impulse to act quickly and suddenly even unexpectedly without mm -hmm. having like a major like planning everything out ahead of time and sometimes that can be good like you can you can do things that maybe you wouldn't have done otherwise because you have the sudden insight of how you'd like to move forward rapidly and in a way that has like innovation at its core but in other scenarios that energy can backfire if you charge in sort of recklessly and sometimes recklessness can be a mm -hmm. good keyword for a mars uranus square yeah i would agree right a, a lack of planning um mm. a lot uh, action without planning um and because it's mars it's often like consequential action um and then, yeah, as you're saying, internally, um, there can also be um, overreactions where that um, that match drop near or the cigarette drop near the oil drum is an internal thing where like something happens that like triggers and inflames this whole sort of latent complex. Um, so, yeah, people, which looks like people freaking out. Um, and maybe, <laughs> you know, and then what are they freaking out about it? Maybe there's something to learn about uh, freaking out, but um, that's the energy. Yeah. Um, technological disruptions could be another major one since we've already seen um, technology stuff being a major theme of some of the transits of the other planets through Aquarius so far. And Uranus is definitely a disruptive technology planet as well so seeing mars and uranus coming together here could be something some sort of disruption um in that sphere of life so what's weird though is that you know this is happening at the same time as the new moon at 20 degrees of pisces so it's kind of like imprinting the, this entire next month with this signature so that it may not be something that is just limited to this day but almost seems to have some like carry over over the next few weeks yeah yeah kind of yeah yes and also um to a certain degree no in that you know the the <clears throat> the new moon here is sort of resetting everything um in the same zone as saturn and neptune which have been there for a year and are going to be there for another year plus and mm -hmm. you know if we look at sort of the chain of who's influencing who astrology wise um you know it's saturn that rules the mars Right. And that, that just like we, and it's Saturn that rules the Pluto, that like Saturn, Neptune, and Pisces, that like what is real, what is not real, 
like um, entering a more sort of liquid era where it seems like a whole lot can happen and things are kind of out of control, like being, you know, the, the sun and moon are coming together to be in that space between Saturn and Neptune, which is really uh, in many ways uh, defining uh, of this little micro era that we're in. Um, and yeah, like the, yes, the Mars Uranus is happening, but it's, you know, there's that recentering in this space, which is sort of underneath the more um, the louder and more chaotic surface um, events that are happening. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad you're emphasizing the how this lunation, because it's happening like right in between Saturn and Neptune, is really accentuating that Saturn Neptune conjunction. Um, which, even though it's you know, a little far away still by degree at this point, this lunation is going to draw those two planets together. Um, and I guess from a personal standpoint, we've been talking a lot, you know, technologically about how that's been working out, but um, some of the blurring of boundaries between things and blurring between like the imaginal realms and the realms of reality. Um, I've been seeing a lot of stories of people just feeling burnt out, like over the past year, you know, in in my space, it's been like YouTubers that are kind of burnt out um, from the constant grind of like creating content for years and years on end, um, months and months and months, and are deciding to like take a step back, or they're like deciding to produce less content, or finding a way to um, integrate like rest into their life more. Um, but I feel like I've been seeing signs of that in a number of different fields of people feeling this sense of like fatigue, um, not just like physically, but also sometimes like like mentally or even like spiritually on some level. And I know that's something that that Tarnas actually talks about in his studies of Saturn Neptune. Mm -hmm. um, but it's interesting seeing that coming up in concrete ways where over the past few months there's been all these YouTubers like announcing that they're gonna like step back or take a break or or even stop what they're doing. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. That makes sense. Um, I think connected to that is with Saturn, Neptune, and Pisces. There's um, this sort of like this quality of immersion, like like as in a body of water, where you've just been you and the other YouTubers have just been immersed in this thing, and there's a real power to getting out of the water. Um, you're, you know, the physics change, you move differently, you can feel the weight, you can also see the water from the outside, um, that need to step back from immersion, um, makes a lot of sense. I, I would also just sort of add like part of the way I'm, I guess I'm thinking about this new moon and just coming back to Saturn, Neptune, uh, Saturn, Neptune is again, like, uh, it's a two and a half year, Saturn, Neptune Pisces is a two and a half year micro era. Right. And so with the sun and the moon coming together there, there's this sense of <clears throat> sort of getting back to the question of what is this deep, confusing space that I'm in? And it may be that the answer, uh, that the answers are not easy to come by and that it's not possible to understand it wholly because the nature of it is that it's deep and confusing. Um, but the, perhaps the more important question is knowing what I can know about the space that I'm in, what is the best way to navigate it? Right. Cause we have to pick a way of moving through a space, whether we, uh, at, with whatever knowledge and ignorance we have of it. Right. 
Like you don't, um, you don't always get to know everything before you decide um, how you're going to move through a space. That's actually a delightful luxury when you get that. But, you know, I think the Saturn, Neptune and Pisces really uh, <clears throat> tests and points to how do we navigate uh, a situation that just has a, a lot of unknowns, right? Where we can fill in some of them, but we're not going to get the the complete picture. Um, maybe never, maybe just not for a couple of years, but certainly not right now while we have, you know, business to do and life to live. Yeah. And there's this sort of amorphous nebulousness to it um, at the same time that's really going to be accentuated around March 8th because there's a Mercury-Neptune conjunction happening in Pisces as well. And so that's happening, you know, just a couple of days before the, the Mercury ingress, which then Mercury sort of makes a clean break from some of this stuff. But during this conjunction, because it's like the Mercury-Neptune conjunction happens on the 8th, and then right after that, the Mars um, Uranus square takes place and the new moon takes place. So Mercury-Neptune conjunctions, as we know, often have to deal with um, communication that's not clear, sometimes deceptive communication, um, misunderstandings, but also sometimes um, empathy, like really empathetic communication or communicating something um, about the plight of somebody else something that evokes like sympathy and, and a deep uh, sense of of feeling for the sort of um the position that people find themselves in sometimes yeah yeah those are that's a good summary all right so um then we make a clean break a couple of days later to mercury in actually here let me share clear that we make a clean break to mercury and aries by march 10th um let's just really quickly give some keywords for mercury and aries if only we had somebody who specialized in or, or perhaps had that placement uh that might be might be helpful do you know anybody oh mercury and aries yeah oh it's me um, oh right yeah yeah pisces sun and pisces and mercury and aries um yeah this is actually a not bad match for my own cycle because um i'm i've got pisces sun mercury and aries and it's about i think it's about 10 days i was born about 10 days before mercury retrogrades um so this is a little yeah this is 20 days before mercury retrogrades here on march 10th that's weird um, i don't think there's anything important happening in your life right now so that's <laughs> odd odd that that would be happening yeah right um but so what, what's interesting here, so what, what's interesting, what's kind of useful about the Mercury and Aries while there's all this stuff in Pisces is Mercury and Aries, real, because it's Mars ruled, really wants something pragmatic um, to do, right? Like Aries is very much like it's Mars ruled. So it's like, okay, but what do we do? Um, yes, the world is infinitely complex, but, you know, what's the next step? And so Mercury and Aries will be pushing toward for a more, how should we say, a, a more uh, discreet, defined, um, pa uh, discreet, defined like way of getting through or way of moving through Mercury as the traveler through this period, which it has a nice, at least uh, as a nice priority on um, clarity that all the Pisces stuff doesn't, you know, the Pisces stuff like you were saying earlier about not wanting to make a decision 
Um, from the Pisces point of view, it's like you want to understand and feel out the entirety of the question and all of the possible responses to it. You know, Pisces is is sort of going big and deep to get the whole picture before um, that is then shrunk down into the one choice made, which is sort of Aries. It's sort of the Pisces Aries transition. It's like, oh, there's the whole universe, and I'm going to be just this one person to do do just one life, right? Pisces to Aries. Um, yeah, that's perfect. Because there's this, there's the indecisiveness of Pisces, but then what you, the corrective function of Aries is suddenly like extreme decisiveness and just like taking action um, immediately and not necessarily like waiting around or like floundering around um, thinking about it or like reflecting on it necessarily, which can be positive or or negative in certain contexts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you know you reduce um, a thousand possibilities to one reality, um, but um, there's some there's a challenge uh, to the Mercury and Ariesing um, this time, which is that Rahu or the North Node or the the head of the dragon um, is there in Aries, and you know the North Node is our eclipse point, um, which we're going to see the Sun eclipsed on um, was the eighth of April, and you know, uh, the that eclipse point, both of the eclipse points, the north and south node, retain their power to obscure um, and to confuse even when they are not in the act of obscuring the sun or moon's light. And so, you know, there's, there's basically, you know, they're sort of a mobile shadow. Um, and that makes it trickier for Mercury to see the way forward. Um, trickier, again, because Mercury is slowly moving into um uh, in into the place of retrogradation um at the very end of the month beginning of april and so there's the pathfinding around here is tricky um you know there, again it's like uh, mercury gets out of pisces okay we need to get out of the infinite soup like let's figure out a way through this but the the terrain is uh the terrain is tricky and obscured um and there's going to need to be some doubling back um, and that's just sort of setting the stage for later in the month when Mercury is almost retrograde and we start getting eclipses. Yeah, for sure. Um, one of the things that makes me think about, I'm in the process of negotiating, working out the details of doing an episode with an astrologer named Britton LaRue, who has a book coming out, but we're going to be talking about unshaming the signs, which is a thing that a series that she's focused on. And her statement for Aries was unshaming my Aries has meant having the audacity to start building on a dream before I fully know what I'm doing. And I thought that was really good because oftentimes we think about like the negative mm -hmm. quality of Aries being this impulsiveness that just like dives into things without knowing what it's doing or having a long-term plan. But um, sometimes, especially in the, the positive manifestations of that, in terms of embracing that, sometimes you've got to dive in and just make the first effort to start building things, even if you don't know where it's going to go, just because you have the feeling that you need to do something and now is the time to do it. And sometimes just following that impulse to take action can be really important and really crucial. Oh, 100%. I think, and that goes to a certain degree for all of the fire signs. There's like, a lot of times they planets and fire signs have the vision before they have the rationale right it's like no this is i this is the right way to go like this is the right thing or this is the right angle on this but it's 
um like it only gets uh, uh it only gets um sort of proven um later why that was a good idea um with my mercury and aries um you know for me a lot of times i'll get a, a picture of things that i can then sort of backtrack and sort of test or look at the astrology and be like oh that was the right picture the picture was trying to tell me things that were true for me the first astrological almanac that i wrote um, when I did, when I was doing yearlies, and which was for 2011, it came out in 2010. There was this big cut section that I super regret cutting, um, <clears throat> but I thought it was just too weird and visionary. I, I had all this. I kept getting all this stuff about um, where I was seeing. I was thinking in terms of um, uh, the jinn, which are I don't know uh, the the sort of animist spirits of the middle eastern world but i was in you know which where we get the term genie um the fae the spirits the you know whatever but i was seeing this like uprising of the jinn in the desert um <clears throat> and it was really compelling and i had some kind of literary writing about it but i was like that's that's like that's like nice I don't know, fantasy RPG content, but like cut that. And then it was around the Uranus, um, Uranus's ingress into Aries. And then sure enough, Uranus moves into Aries and the entire Middle Eastern North African world like erupts into what get, got called the Arab Spring later. And I was like, oh, like my brain was going in the right direction. I was using like, you know, fantasy images, but like that was like that, that spirit of revolt in that place was exactly right. And anyway, so that, that was, that was really instructive for me. I was like, okay, like there, a lot of times there's something in there, even if you don't understand it ahead of time. Yeah, for sure. That's a great example. Um, I do think there's going to be a lot of like diving in head first and trying to get things going in March, but because Mercury enters its shadow mid-month by, I think, by the 18th and will station retrograde at the very end of the month so that Mercury will return back to and retrace its steps, especially where it was crossing in the second half of the month, it'll be a lot of like shoot first, ask questions later, but then eventually having to come back and like revise or revisit some things, um, especially if some of that that initial impulse to to act before planning leads to um, delays or leads to doing things not exactly the right way and needing to come back and do it a second time or a third time in order to sort of perfect it. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of needing to double back. You know, with Mars and pathfinding, I think of, um, um, you know, I think of um, how people have to work their way through thick jungle, jungle excuse me thick jungle terrain where you have to cut a path with a machete right and it's slow going and if you end up like going the wrong way or pursuing a path that's a dead end um you know it's extra work that doubling back because you can't see that far ahead of yourself and um every step is um you know requires additional effort because the way is not clear you have to clear the way that you that you hope will lead to your you know your desired destination heading through the machete that is such a perfect metaphor for mercury going through aries this month and then yeah going retrograde and then having to cut your way back to backtrack and then maybe turn around again one more time to go forward again but just that you have to do something to clear the way but it's like a machete is like a short term, you know, thing because you can only cut what's like immediately in front of you. Yeah, yeah, and you have to 
to see whether this is leading in the right direction, you have to do a bunch of work cutting through the brush to even see if this is a viable, um, you know, a viable route. Right. Um, and with Mercury, it's like a lot of that cutting through the brush has to be done through communication or through investigation, through negotiation, um, and other Mercury-related keywords like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And All it's, right. Uh, yeah, we'll come back to other things. We've got lots of fun stuff to talk about. So are we ready for Venus to enter Pisces? Yeah, I'm definitely ready for Venus to enter Pisces. So <laughs> um, Venus enters Pisces on the 11th and especially on yeah, 11th and 12th. Um, Venus goes into Pisces and then begins the buildup to a conjunction with Saturn, which is at 11 degrees of Pisces at this point. So we get the buildup to a Venus, a Venus Saturn conjunction that will eventually go exact by March 21st. Yeah. So the, do you want to start? There's a, I think there's a fair amount to say about Venus's travels through Pisces this year. So it's like, I, I guess the two primary things are just symbolically the two things we know to go with there is just on the one hand, Venus is moving into a sign where she's, um, doing better in terms of zodiacal dignity and venus is in the sign of her exaltation which is usually a sign in which some of her impulses are raised up and actualized to their highest extent especially in terms of relating or in terms of artistic endeavors and the desire to reach harmony and to reconcile disparate things into one whole to create a whole um, but the other part of that here with Saturn is that Saturn is kind of cooling off everything and, and usually creates this distance, whereas Pisces wants to, Pisces and Venus especially want to bring things together. And I think it creates a fundamental tension that we'll be wrestling with, especially in the buildup to that conjunction. Yeah. You know, Venus and Venus and Saturn have have this really interesting sort of melancholy uh relationship. Um they're not in some ways they're they're very much opposed um you'll see like renaissance era woodcuts and illustrations of the the god of saturn um clipping off cupid's wings or eros's wings like literally cutting the wings off of love um but it, you also have you know, when you look at it zodiacally saturn exalts in venus's sign of of libra um and you get it you get to this very i don't know like sort of literary territory of like melancholy beauty um and you know reflecting uh you know like reflecting or it also brings me to like um uh, thinking uh saturn venus there's this like funereal um sort of perspective where you look back at a life and you think about you know the person's successes and failures but and all even though it's you know it's necessarily sad to a certain degree there's this sort of like beauty of any life when you look back at it um which includes and incorporates the tragedies the moments of hubris etc cetera, etc cetera. um i when i in, in my 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 workshop that i did on the planetary pairs for venus and saturn my my nickname for this one was the uh the somber bouquet mm -hmm. that's good the somber bouquet that's beautiful right like, um, as you might receive during your stay in the hospital while you're getting treated for something serious or at a funeral it's you know it, it, it there's like a show of love but it's like yeah anyway that that's the sort of energy that i get from venus saturn 
Yeah, that's really good because Saturn and Pisces, there is this um, sadness or this longing. Um, mm -hmm. Pisces, though, especially when Venus is imported into the mix, brings this sense of empathy. Um, and I think empathy is a really good keyword for this combination because sometimes through hardship, especially with Saturn, it creates empathy um, because you have experienced the same thing as somebody else and having experienced like loss or hardship or tragedy, um, it creates a, a memory, a sort of a Saturnian memory of what that's like and what that feeling is. Um, so that when you see it in somebody else, those same feelings are invoked in you in your memory, and it creates sometimes a desire then to reach out and to want to help or soothe the pain of somebody that's experiencing the same thing, because you can place yourself in in their position from when you experience that yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said. So um, let's see in the comments, Jane in the comments in the live chat of patrons that are joining us today as we're recording this mentions nostalgia. I think that's a really good keyword for this. Mm -hmm. Vandana says melancholy. Um, those are all really good. Uh, and Wend says compassion. I think all of those are really good keywords for some of this and a, and a sort of feeling that we're going to be experiencing for the entirety of Venus um, in Pisces, which is is pretty much this entire month once Venus makes that ingress um, on the 11th. Um, but certainly it's going to culminate once with the Venus-Saturn conjunction on the 21st, and then later we'll get another intensification of that at some point when Venus conjoins Neptune. I believe, I think that's like next month. Yeah, it's going towards that. But yeah, the um, yeah. the like the the saturn co-presence is there the whole time but the lead up to the conjunction um so what like the first nine ten days of venus's time in pisces definitely has that like heavy heavy compassionate felt nostalgic melancholic um sort of uh vibe to it yeah and you know we're coming we'll be coming out of venus and aquarius which i think is the creation sometimes of new technological things, but it's not until you get to Pisces that you get the really inspired piece of artworks that like speak to people on some deep or some core level. So that's something I would pay attention to during this time as well is um, something in the artistic realm that like moves people on a, on a core psychological or even like spiritual level. Yeah. On the level of meaning. Right. Yeah, a level of meaning as opposed to just like Aquarius, which is almost like an abstract sort of like rule-based or like math or science-based um, sort of uh, way of perceiving the universe. Yeah, like there's an idea and there's data, but what does it like mean to a conscious being? Exactly. Perfect. All right. So mid-month is when things start getting crazy and things start really heating up, I think, um, because two things happen. One we've already mentioned is that Mercury enters its shadow by, I believe, the 18th, around 15 degrees of Aries, uh, where it's actually conjoining the node at that time. So we know then that Mercury is going to retrograde back to this point in the future so that any events that take place basically in the second half of the month are both a buildup to, but a precursor to something we're going to return to next month in April. So that's one thing. The other thing is that in the second half of the month, we enter into eclipse season. And one of the things that we learned from doing the eclipses episode, um, which I did 
when we were in the middle of eclipse season in October and just everything was going crazy in terms of world events is I did that study with Nick. And one of the things we found is that eclipse season, um, it really begins like the operative time frame for eclipses begins at least a week before the eclipse, but sometimes even a little bit before that. So once we hit the middle of the month, we were in the buildup to that Libra eclipse, which is then going to take place um, on the 25th of March. So, yeah. The, go, ahead. go ahead. Okay. I was just going to say the, um, like, I, I would say for me, it's like once the sun ingresses in Aries on the 20th, it's, it's kind of on because mm -hmm. from the 20th until the end of March, we have, um, so the sun moving into Aries puts it in the same sign um, as the nodes, as the node that will eclipse it, um, both the moon and it. So we have like moon, uh, excuse me, we have the sun node co-presence. Um, very shortly thereafter, we have Mars move into Pisces. So now it's Mars-Saturn action, which is dangerous. Um, and we are not very far out. Uh, or as you said, you know, we just entered the, uh, just a little bit before the the uh the sun's ingress in aries we have mercury entering the shadow of the retrograde so all of the stuff is either happening or just about to happen we've entered the um you know the event horizon of the uh the three factors which together make the end of march and mm, at least the first half of april um very powerful and chaotic um to the point that you know this stuck out to both of us um uh like a sore thumb when we looked at the yearly we're like oh shit what what happens in uh late march and in the first half of april yeah like stuff starts getting really serious and we spent a lot of time talking about this because it's like we get this eclipse that happens at the end of march and then we get like the great american eclipse that's going to take place uh solar eclipse in aries in in april and that's the one that's going to like cross the entire united states um, and is expected to be really significant because also like a comet like shows up around that time, which is going to start being visible here pretty soon in March and April, I believe. Um, and we also get the ingress of Mars into Pisces um, here around this time. So we begin the build up to the Mars-Saturn conjunction. And this is the first Mars-Saturn conjunction that occurs in Pisces mm -hmm. after the past several years of Mars-Saturn conjunctions taking place in Aquarius going back to March and April of 2020 when we had that famous Mars-Saturn conjunction um, that took place around the time of the lockdowns when um, the entire world just ground to a halt all of a sudden, which was really terrible, but also really fitting in terms of the symbolism of that, which you know we've often described Mars-Saturn conjunctions as like slamming on the brakes when you're driving a car and things just suddenly coming to a halt. Yeah, and the um, I wonder if some of that will be uh, we'll have some, I was going to say, some slowing, some slamming on the brakes, things getting halted uh, as a result of um, uh, 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 sea lane disruption. Mm -hmm. Right, we know, we've talked about this with uh, with the Saturn and Pisces. Like Saturn likes to clog and slow down Pisces, the water. We've already had when we had Mars square Saturn and Pisces. That was the height of the. Um, 
um, the the attacks on 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 excuse me <clears throat> the attacks on on shipping, um, and that was Mars Saturn Square. Um, and so I've been looking at, um, at, excuse me, at attacks on shipping or just things that disrupt um, normal sea lanes for shipping, not only uh, in the Red Sea, but also potentially other places. That's just a place we know to look for it. Um, so, yeah, I'm definitely looking at shipping with Mars Saturn and the conflicts that are already uh, the the conflicts that are 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 currently lit and burning, um, having uh, having a greater naval component. Yeah, that would make sense as a very literal manifestation of that, and would fit pretty perfectly. We also had, you know, when Saturn stationed last June for the first time in Pisces, the submarine incident. Um, so other kind of very literal things like that could be relevant here in terms of the Mars. Okay, Saturn. I have to I have to add something that I wasn't going to add when you said submarine component. I was just thinking about how recently um, uh, a spokesman for the the Houthis um, was uh, said like um, basically we're going we have submarine weapons you'll see them soon. Mm, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, so it could be very literal in terms of that. Um, that would be kind of crazy if we end up with just like submarine things happening over and over again the entire time Saturn is in Pisces. Um, yeah, so that, I, I mean that metaphor of oh, it's a, it's it's you know beneath the waves in a dangerous space. Like it, it, it is a great match for the symbolism. Yeah, for sure. That's like super literal. Um, I was thinking more metaphorically since we've talked so much about you know all the technological stuff that was happening has been happening that's moving so quickly, and all the news stories we just discussed when all the planets were going through Aquarius. You know, part of what's happening now in March with the planets that go through Pisces is I feel like there might be a reflection period on some of that and a period of like questioning. And, um, you know, especially with Mars Saturn conjunction with that starting to form, we talked about like slamming on the brakes. Like, what if some of the slamming on the of the brakes is the initial inklings of like some pushback against some of that stuff or some of the the like existential questions of like, what are we doing? Or like, where are we going with all this? What is the purpose? Um, what is this serving us? Um, as well as other sort of deeper philosophical reflections and like musings like that becoming more acute at this time for some reason. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, Mars, Saturn, um, Mars, Saturn conjunctions, um, bring a real awareness, like a, a real security awareness, like, oh, no, they're in in this particular situation. This is a real threat. This is something that needs to be thought about. Like, and you see that in, you know, in time periods, but you also see it uh, in individuals, people who have more Saturn conjunctions, um, very rarely, um, very rarely have a naive perspective on what dangers are. They're like, no, no, this is that can kill you, that can kill you, that can kill you, and that's why we're going to do this so that we don't get killed by any of the things. But threat awareness is a is a huge part of Mars Saturn, and it's worth noting that you know uh, that at this point the Sun is in Aries, and so is Mercury, and so is Rahu or the North Node. That's all Mars rule. So all of the like whatever Mars and Saturn are doing that um, that encountering Saturn position of Mars, Mars is sending all of that to Aries, right? So it's a really that Mars Saturn is really influential, 
and that mm-hmm. takes an, an, until well into April to become perfect. Um, but it start it becomes operant the second Mars enters Pisces. Yeah, let me check on when the date of that is. So the Mars Saturn conjunction itself looks like it goes exact around April tenth and April eleventh. So we're we're building up to that exact conjunction where it's going to culminate around that time. But the series of events and the general shift that's going to be really palpable is going to take place on March uh, 22nd and 23rd as soon as Mars goes into Pisces and begins the process of building up to that um, around that time. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a pretty there it's a relatively hectic couple days, right? Because it's um, equinox sun enters uh, Aries on the twentieth, Mars enters Pisces on the twenty second, and then we have um, the the first eclipse. We have a lunar eclipse in Libra twenty fourth, twenty fifth, depending on your time zone. Yeah, everything just starts happening really quick and. Um, <clears throat> as we know from past eclipses, especially from October, when we're we're all like collectively going through that, um, the pace of events just starts moving really fast around eclipse season. <clears throat> and also um there's this like chaotic quality to it where um mm-hmm. think things start happening fast, but especially people's individual lives and individual fate, there's a pivot point where it starts either moving very rapidly upwards suddenly or very rapidly downwards suddenly. And we often see the rise and fall of prominent people happening around the time of eclipses. Um, we often see the rise and fall of like entities like companies. Um, some of the like Bitcoin FTX fiasco, for example, happened under eclipses. Um Oh yeah, what um, else? the 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 what was the what was that charlatan's name? The um, Sam Sam Altman. Yeah, he's gonna get sentenced on that Mars Saturn conjunction. I think. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's fitting, and also continues the eclipse themes. Then, in terms of how that's worked out for him in the past so far, um, as well as you know, Bitcoin in general. Um, so yeah, Mars Saturn is building up, but really primary focal point of this is just the eclipse in Libra that takes place. This is not the first eclipse in Libra. We already had a solar eclipse in Libra that took place in October, like right in the middle of October. And that was the first of a series of eclipses in that sign of the zodiac. But this, um, because it's occurring six months later in the same sign, for some people will represent a continuation of events that started in October um, and especially a continuation of major changes. And what I always call them is major beginnings and major endings in the life, in, in the area of your chart, in the area of your life that matches Libra and whatever house that is. So a lot of people, either you've already gotten like an inkling of what those changes are, and you'll just see a continuation of that at this point. Um, or for some people, some of those changes may not have been fully evident to you back in October, but they'll start to become, start to make themselves much more clear at this point, especially since this is a lunar eclipse as opposed to the solar eclipse from the last one. Yeah. 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 This is, again, this is not an intro to a new thing. This is a very significant second installment to something that um, began in earnest six months ago. And um, this will not be the last installment either, but it's fully underway. 
And so, yeah, one of the things that we don't love, um, but saw when we were looking at things for the yearly is that they, um, this, um, this last sort of brutal iteration of the Palestinian Israeli conflict started right on the eclipses six months ago or six months from the period we're talking about here. Um, and it, um, there will probably be another brutal episode, uh, during this period. Yeah. And especially, um, when Israel went into to Palestine afterwards, like that really started falling closely on those eclipses. So there was something about it was on the eve of this of the lunar eclipse that was opposite uh, Mars and Scorpio. It was, uh, uh, it was, yeah, it was a, it, you know, it was it was a configuration that kind of said, oh, worst case scenario, um, and you know, hope uh, hope we're wrong about this, but this things are shaping up to to um, look like we're going to have another eclipse, heavy Mars um, situation here. Yeah, so somehow to represent. A continuation of that and whatever the next phase is that'll set up a paradigm for the next six months, um, because then this won't be the last set of eclipses in these signs, but we'll actually see a continuation of some of these clip eclipses later this year. Yeah, yeah. Um, and boy, you know, this is again like the looking at it again. I understand why we were so moved by it several months ago, because you know, we've got Mars Saturn, which is dangerous. Right, it's serious and it's dangerous, um, but Mars Saturn together aren't inherently confusing, right? Like something can be dangerous without being confusing, but whenever we have um, eclipse time, right, like things move, things appear and disappear very quickly. Um, the uh, should we say the musical chairs, <laughs> uh, the the game of musical thrones uh, is very intense and inherently obscured, like the whole phenomenon of eclipses is the obscuration of light like oh i can't see the sun during the middle of the day uh it's supposed to be the moon that the night is brightest why is the moon um this sort of like dull red barely illuminating anything and so we add to that mercury's retrograde which is um by the time we're getting to the eclipse we're less than a week out from or we're about a week out from the mercury's uh, retrograde station which is in my observation, when Mercury's retro really starts kicking. Um, and Mercury is in the same sign as Rahu, the eclipsing North Node. And so, you know, this combination of dangerous Mars Saturn with all of this confusion, um, it's it, it's a really it's a kind of it's a, you know, kind of a crazy situation. I, I would say that this potentially saving grace, but I don't know if it can be relied on is that we have Jupiter, the Jupiter-Uranus conjunction is getting really tight. And Jupiter-Uranus will hand out some surprising, amazing winds, right? It's like surprise Jupiter rather than reliable Jupiter. Um, and for the people who get the best from the Jupiter-Uranus, um, they will come out of this very happy, right? Like when the smoke clears, um, they will... Um, how should we say they'll find themselves in a position of unexpected good fortune, but because Uranus, because Uranus introduces this disruptive, chaotic, unpredictable note to Jupiter, um, it's like we can't rely on winning the Jupiter lotto or just getting having the transit work out uh, as we would expect otherwise. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> There's definitely like a liberatory impulse to that Jupiter. Um, Uranus conjunction of like a freedom seeking impulse, but 
but I, I feel like that's not going to culminate until later in April when that conjunction goes exact. But already by this point, by this first eclipse, we're going to start seeing that impulse becoming much more prominent and um, both in individual lives as well as in the collective, um, sort of that like striving for um, for freedom and like breaking out of old um, situations that are no longer like acceptable at that point. Yeah, yeah. And so all this is just, you know, this is the um this is all of these uh factors coming online um to contribute to the situation which is established by the end of March, but you know, runs through at least the first half of um uh of April. Like this is a you know a multi-week period where there's just a fuck ton going on. Yeah, especially a two-week period, because that two-week period from one eclipse to the second one. So from starting on March 25th, that eclipse, it opens up a two-week window or like portal where we're like right in the middle of eclipse season. Everything gets very chaotic. Um, things start going either upwards or downwards very quickly. Um, the end of things happening, like some things come to a dramatic end. So sometimes this can be like metaphorically like the end of a relationship, the end of a career, um, or other things like that, depending on what house it's falling in in your chart. In the most extreme sense, the the ultimate end of something can also be like the death of something, um, either metaphorically or sometimes literally. We've seen, you know, notable celebrity deaths happen around the time of eclipses. So that's always something we sort of watch out for or pay attention to, since there's no greater, you know, end to something than like the physical cessation of life. Um, yeah, so eclipses are really important, and that's going to be something we're going to be paying a lot of attention to. I might do like part three of like the eclipses series, honestly, during this eclipse one, because I think it's going to give us a lot of new examples to work with. Yeah, 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 100%. Um, you know, I'll also point out this period is so disruptive that I will be absent from the astrology podcast for the first time since June oh my god 15 the light <laughs> the light will truly have been snuffed out of my life um for <laughs> for once in the past decade that's amazing so there will be an obscuration of a great you know luminary in our community well thank you when, and what's funny right is I'm cancer rising so the eclipse in Aries is in my 10th right like you you won't be uh... able to see me that's um, brilliant. And my Mercury is there too. And so it's, you know, Rahu on my Mercury and, you know, Mercury retrograde there. So it, it's like a recurrence, but with my nodes, with the nodes in my 10th rather than my ninth where they are natally. So yeah. And yet, and yet uh, new life will be literally being born like at that time under the obscurity of that, that eclipse and under the obscurity of your, your sudden absence. Yeah. Yeah. There, well, like, and this is something we say about eclipses, right? There's a lot going on behind the scenes, right? Like the sun is still there putting out just as much energy, but you don't see it or you can like, you can only half see it. So yeah, big, uh, big, <laughs> big events. Um, and, but, and that's why I always say eclipses are like great beginnings and great endings. But another way of saving that is the great is the the birth of something, but also sometimes the death of something. Also, side note, given some of our argument, longstanding arguments of eclipses over the years, if you end up having an eclipse baby, like that's going to crack me, crack me up. Okay. Well, I mean, I am, you and I are both eclipse babies. Oh yeah. No, I know. I'm in favor of eclipse babies and especially over the research of the past several months. I mean, 
one of the things we saw mm -hmm. was just like so many important people being born on eclipses and then having important events happen under eclipses. Like that was one of the great discoveries mm -hmm. in some sense of that whole eclipse series was just how important eclipses have been through history, both in the lives of individuals as well as in like, you know, public events. Yeah. Um, I certainly have never maintained that eclipses, uh, <laughs> um, how do I put this? Um, the, you definitely get some things from being an eclipse baby. Um, and there's definitely a price for that. It's mm. not, um, you know, what, what gifts, um, strongly eclipsy people have, um, were not free. You know, it's like we, we could compare it to having a very strong, very dignified malefic in the chart, right? Like being, being a favored child of Saturn, right? You get to be doted on by Saturn and learn all the Saturn things so well. Um, you know, tell us about how Saturn school was, right? And so being a, being a child of the, being a child of the, of the dragon, right? Like you get to go to dragon school, which is not necessarily a peaceful education, but I yeah, would, yeah, well, I, well, you end up, you get to be the center of events and sometimes the leader of, of some of the most important events in the world. But then at the same time, you're the one whose shoulders a lot of the most important events in the world fall on. And there's a great heaviness and a great weight that comes with that. It's like, you know, you're Abraham Lincoln, you're like one of the greatest presidents, let's say in American history, but then it's like, you're also the president during the civil war. Um, that would be my yeah. analogy. Yeah. And that, yeah, that, that's one version of it. Um, you also have people whose work is obscured unfairly during their lifetime you see mm -hmm. um you, you see people um getting credit stolen from them when they have eclipse stuff that's one of the things that eclipses do is they block people from seeing the light again the work is done but there's theft or obscuration um and you know as much as i hate to balance the american president example we've got lincoln and then we've got trump who was born during an eclipse um certainly an important figure uh in american politics um but you know not necessarily um a uh how should we say like i i don't think we'll be honored as uh a savior figure um even a, a, a flaw a deeply flawed savior figure uh, such as abraham lincoln yeah i mean that's going to be one of the things that's going to be crucial as we know the eclipse this year eclipses this year both eclipse seasons are going to be crucial for the presidential election um, and of course, we know that Trump was born on a, under a lunar eclipse the same day as a lunar eclipse, and that um, the last time there was like a major eclipse that happened across America was in 2017, like just after he had been elected and, and inaugurated, and he'd just been president for like a few months at that point when that eclipse happened. So I always associate that eclipse with him, especially because it occurred like right on his ascendant. Um, but then, yeah, of course, now we have another eclipse going across America, which presumably then has some direct bearing on some important events taking place in the country around this time, especially in the two-week window uh, that opens up starting with the Libra eclipse in late March and going through into early April. Yeah. Well, and so uh, an interesting thing that uh, Freedom Cole pointed out to me years ago is that when you run the Vimshotari uh, Dasha timing system on the Sibley chart, um, you have the United States in um, in a long um, North Node period or Rahu period when you're doing Time Lords. And so um, 
if you, you know, if we're just treating it like a natal chart, if you're in a period that's sensitized towards eclipses, then the eclipses that let's say are visible in that country are going to be much more, are going to be much more impactful during that time period. And we don't, we, we entered that, uh, that Rahu period, I think it was the early teens, early mid teens. It was right before the 2016 election. And we're not out of it, I think until early 2030s. Okay. I didn't know this, but um, Lynn in the comments says that Trump's election interference trial starts on the 25th. So that's amazing. Oh, if that... Right on the right on the right lunar on, eclipse. Literally right, right on, on the, the eclipse. eclipse. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So and that's going to be the deciding point in terms of like, does that go anywhere? Is he convicted for anything? Does that therefore stop him from running or even becoming president again? Or does it not go anywhere and then does it open it up so that at the end of the year when we get the next set of eclipses you know the the outcome of the election could be will be decided at that point yeah it's so hard i'm i'm you know we've talked about this i'm so hesitant to draw straight lines from now until the end of the year because there's just so much there's so much like um there's so many chaotic um there's so many chaotic configurations between now and then and there's also it's like what does uranus jupiter throughout that might be a good thing but that we don't see coming what about you know i've got like five or six different whatabouts um but yeah um chaotic uh um let me scale this back the end of the month is kind of crazy um, and it's probably a good idea to have some flexibility in how you approach things, because there will likely be some surprises. I would expect that um, chaotic period where you uh, you are likely going to need to adapt to things that happen rather than impose a plan on things that happen uh, to last really through much of April. Um, like there's the two week eclipse um, window, but we don't get Mercury direct until twenty the twenty fourth, twenty fifth of April, um, and it's there. There's I think it's going to take a while for what happens in that um, between the two clip eclipses window um, to shake out. Uh, we'd say the uh, it'll take a while for the smoke to clear. Yeah, the second eclipse, the Aries one, <clears throat> solar eclipse is on the 8th of April, and it's going to take at least a week after that before I think things start to calm down. And then later in the month, we get Jupiter conjoining Uranus on the 20th of April. So that's when things get a little bit nicer again, and some of the more positive sides of the astrology really start to come into focus just after we get out of this chaotic eclipse and Mercury retrograde and Mars conjunct Saturn period. Yeah, it's... um. In the Northern Hemisphere, it's very like full-on Stravinsky's Rites of Spring. Um, it is uh, it is not a, a peaceful classical composition. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, you know, we live in interesting times, uh, which is a, a curse, but at least in terms of the astrology, you know, we are documenting some really interesting stuff, and it's constantly impressive how much some of the ancient interpretive principles apply to these contemporary events that we're all witnessing and we're all like in the audience and privy to. Yeah. Well, they had war and political strife and injustice and, you know, they, they had all those things. Some of the tools, um, <laughs> some of the tools we use are different, but um, the, the human situations that are created that we create with our tools and that the world creates for us are 
the outcomes aren't all that different. Yeah, for sure. The dynamics of life are still very, very much the same, very similar. Um, okay. Eclipse stuff, Mercury retrograde stuff. Do we talk sufficiently about Mercury retrograde and just the typical Mercury retrograde keywords of like miscommunication, delays? Um, what are do it over again? Do overs, like redos. All of that. Um, yeah, just uh, you know, just cutting your way through that jungle while the uh, you know while the sun goes out during the middle of the day and. Uh, the distant sounds of naval warfare echo through the forest, um, you know, and Jupiter airdrops, um, you know, Jupiter seems to randomly uh, airdrop, um, you know, cash and prizes in a, in a fashion that is very difficult, <laughs> uh, difficult to predict. Yeah. For some people, especially with, um, you know, 20 degrees, especially 2021, 20, 22, 23 degrees of fixed signs where that conjunction is going to be hitting, uh, the comet will cross that conjunction, I think, later in, in April as well. But with the Mercury retrograde, um, yeah, just being open to, you know, it's tricky because during Mercury retrogrades, usually you don't, you want to usually for an electional standpoint, ideally we try not to like start new major things, but because an eclipse, eclipses are going to be happening during that time. I feel like some people are going to be sort of pushed into or forced to start new things at that time. And sometimes you just have to roll with it, but just know that sometimes what you initiate, you may have to go back and revise and revisit and redo. Um, Cause sometimes it's the second or third time that you do something over that you really are able to get it right. And while that may be annoying and it might be frustrating, that whole process, um, usually the end result is you end up doing it way better the second or third time that you do it than you did the first. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Some things take a couple passes to get right. Uh, I would also add that, you know, for situations where you can't change the destination you have in mind, right? Like the thing has to happen regardless. Like for me, I got to get the second edition of faces done, right? Like that, that doesn't, that nothing's going to change that being a thing that needs to happen. Um, but even if your destination is unchanging during a mercury retrograde period, um, being as flexible as you can about pathfinding, like, no, I was going to, you know, I was going to take this highway and I was going to be there in three hours and the destination doesn't change, but you know, the highway Godzilla is walking through the highway. Um, and so it's like, okay, like I take the back roads, I cut through 38 to then jump on 16 or, you know, what, whatever it is, like being flexible about pathfinding um, is uh, often, uh, very often an excellent strategy during Mercury retrogrades. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> and the last thing is just um, about doing things better the second or third time Usually in retrospect, it's only worthwhile though, if you, as long as you learn from your mistakes. So um, having the ability to recognize and, and take into account if you have made mistakes, like during the Mercury retrograde, or if there's something you could have done better, if you had a second or third chance, um, that's part of it as well as there's this period of reflection during the Mercury retrograde where you have the option to reflect and to take into account and adjust for any mistakes you may have made. Um, and sometimes people come out of that stronger, but 
if you if you d don't go through that period of self-reflection or if you choose to sort of like look away from that or pretend that you didn't make mistakes then sometimes you don't gain as much from it as you could mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, yeah third, third time's the charm right as long as you put in the work all right so and the final thing is everybody of course should really think back to six months ago to what was happening in your life under the libra eclipse in october and what house it was falling in in your chart since there may be some themes that started at that point that become relevant again here under this eclipse um towards the end of of march so that's my primary like piece of advice to everyone wondering what this period is going to be about for you all right. Um, is there anything else? I mean, we kind of just ended on a huge <clears throat> cliffhanger because we just start like the first foot basically of eclipse season at the end of this month, but then the second shoe doesn't drop until early April. Yeah, I mean the month ends on a huge cliffhanger. Did you did you have an auspicious election for March, Chris? Oh my god, yeah. I do have an auspicious election. So Lisa Scheim and I picked out the the best chart we could find actually happens right in the middle of the month in terms of finding an auspicious or a lucky date to start new things or to take different actions or start new ventures or undertakings using the principles of electional astrology. And the best chart we found is on March 17th, 2024, at about uh, 12.58 or let's say about 1 p.m. local time in whatever your city is. So if you cast a chart for 1 p.m. local time on March 17th, you should end up with a chart that has uh, cancer rising and the moon in cancer in its own sign so that it's dignified. And the moon is applying to a trine with Venus at seven degrees of Pisces. So a very nice supportive trine with the moon, uh, with Venus. And the moon is also applying to a sextile with Jupiter in Taurus in the 11th house. So this is a good chart to use before things start to get too crazy later in the month, before we get um, fully into the Mercury retrograde shadow, before Mars ingresses into Pisces and starts that build up to the conjunction with Saturn. Um, so I would recommend taking advantage of this chart if you need to start something new or start some sort of new venture or just do something important during the course of the month. Um, this one would be a good one to take advantage of. It's especially good for things having to do with uh, friends and groups and alliances because it has Jupiter in the 11th house of friends and groups, and it's coming up on that conjunction with Uranus. So especially if you need to do something involving like innovation or doing something outside of the box with friends, especially things that are like new or inventive, um, this would be a great chart for that involving friends and groups. Um, yeah, and I think that's the election for the month. What do you think? Um, I think you didn't have much to work with, but this is uh, this will do. Yeah, that's what we do with electional astrology is we find the best we can do given the astrological weather in a given month. So that's one of the charts that we found for this month. Lisa and I are currently working on our Auspicious Elections podcast for patrons, which we're going to release in the next few days, where we found five or six other electional charts during the course of the month as well. So we'll release that in the next few days um, to people on uh, that tier on Patreon. So you can sign up there at the astrology pod at patreon.com slash astrology podcast if you'd like to get access to that. Nice. Yeah. All right. I think that might be it for the forecast. What do you think? I think so. I, I don't I don't really feel like there's anything particularly juicy that we left out. 
All right, cool. Well, thanks for doing this last big forecast with me before your paternity leave. Is that the right term for that? It um, will be if you pay me. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so what do you have going on? I mean, I guess we know what you have going on. You're about to have a baby and that's that's what you got going on? Yeah. It's basically just working on faces. And um, it's funny because the ruler of my fifth is activated this year. So my book baby, like that's basically what I'm doing as much as possible right now. And then my actual baby um, uh, will we'll, we'll be at a significant point with both of these fifth house topics uh, during March. So, and then I'll be back, but not immediately. Um, okay. But people can, people can go to my website while I'm hiding. Um, I've got just a, a pile of recorded classes and presentations and workshops. Um, go to Sphere and Sundry for all of the um the astro magic that I've uh that I've elected. Um Kate um uh Kate really wants to get out the Moon and Jupiter in Taurus series that we made last year um before before go time. So fingers crossed on that. Um, that should be coming out, I don't know, first half of March. Um, hugely looking forward to it. I've been I've been playing with the the stones and the oils and such, and it's one of my favorite series. It's um luxurious and soothing, which um I can certainly use, and I'm probably not the only person. But yeah, spherensundry.com for for the sphere and sundry, excuse me, for the magic stuff, and austincopic.com for the talking endlessly and videos of me talking endlessly brilliant i mean and you have stuff on the deccans there so that all those people like waiting for the deccans book eagerly it's like you have teachings on that already on your website i think i have like a 20 hour class on the deccans up okay so not very much content on that then yeah uh, just well, you know just the light um yeah. just like like a, a cursory pass yeah, for me, that's like a light, like an appetizer uh, talking <laughs> for 20 hours. All right. Um, well, I'm super excited for you. I look forward to hearing how it goes. Um, good luck to you and Kate um, in this new journey. Um, we'll check in. Maybe I can, maybe you can like send me a little text update. I can let people know how it's going in future episodes. Um, I'm going to be doing the podcast. I'm in a really intense phase of uh, working on the philosophy and I'm finding some really important stuff about the uh, stuff about the origins of astrology and its connection with um, ancient philosophy and especially going back to the school of of Plato and how some of his his contemporaries and students made major contributions that ended up influencing the history of astrology in major ways. So I'm pretty excited about that. I'm going to continue exploring stuff like that. I'm thinking about doing an episode on the Antikythera me mechanism soon, which yeah. I've been meaning to do forever, um, as well as other exciting episodes um, that I'm working on. So I have a Saturn return episode that I did that I'll be releasing soon. Um, other episodes on like astrologer boards uh, that ancient astrologers used for consultations, stuff on the rulers of the houses, and so on and so forth. So I'll be releasing all of that two patrons for early access as soon as it's recorded. So if you want to get early access access to that, or if you'd like to support my work, then you know where to go in terms of that. Um, otherwise, I think that's it for this episode. So thanks a lot for joining me, Austin. Yeah, this was really fun. Thanks for having yes. me on. This was great. All right. Well, thanks also to our audience of live patrons who joined us in the live chat. 
Um, thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Good luck next month, and we'll see you again next time. Take care. If you appreciate the work I'm doing here on the podcast and you'd like to find a way to support it, then consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. In exchange, you'll get access to some great subscriber benefits, including early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the forecast each month, our monthly Auspicious Elections podcast, which is only available to patrons, a whole exclusive podcast series called the Casual Astrology Podcast, or you can even get your name listed in the credits. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Shout out to our sponsor for this episode, which is the Chani app, the number one astrology app for self-discovery, mindfulness, and healing. You can download it on the Apple App Store or on Google Play, or for more information, visit app.chani.com. Special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including patrons Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Jeannie Marie Kaplan, Melissa Delano, and Sunny Bozbaz. If you're looking for a reliable astrologer to get an astrological consultation with, then we have a new list of astrologers on the podcast website that we recommend for readings. Most of the astrologers specialize in birth chart readings, although some also offer synastry, rectification, electional astrology, horary questions, and more. Find out more information at theastrologypodcast.com slash consultations. The astrology software that we use and recommend here on the podcast is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available for the PC at alabe.com. Use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we recommend a software program called Astro Gold for Mac OS, which is from the creators of SolarFire for PC, and it includes both modern and traditional techniques. You can find out more information at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount. If you'd like to learn more about my approach to astrology, then I'd recommend checking out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune where I go over the history, philosophy, and techniques of ancient astrology, taking people from beginner up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. If you're really looking to expand your studies of astrology, then I would recommend my Hellenistic Astrology course, which is an online course on ancient astrology, where I take people through basic concepts up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. There's over 100 hours of video lectures, as well as guided readings of ancient texts, and by the time you finish the course, you will have a strong foundation in how to read birth charts as well as make predictions. You can find out more information at courses.theastrologyschool.com. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer magazine, which is a quarterly astrology magazine which you can read in print or online at mountainastrologer.com. And the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening both in person and online May 23rd through the 27th, 2024. You can find out more information at norwac.net. Mm -hmm.